You are listening to Spacetime Mind. Please be advised that this podcast contains strong language and abstract ideas not suitable for all intelligent life forms. Craig, is, is it true that there will be nothing but machines? That we are machines? Yes. Yes, it's true. Machines. But you're a beautiful machine. Space, time, mind, mind, 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 space, time, mind, should somehow, somehow do a Jedi do a mind Jedi meld. In space! So uh, welcome everybody. This is Pete Mandic at Space Time Mind. I am coming at you from the messiest attic in New Jersey. And my guest is coming in from Texas. Is that correct? Yep. Tarek LaCour, and I'm going to apologize ahead of time. I'm probably going to call you Tariq. that that happens happens all the time i just roll with it at this point uh but i'm I'm very pleased uh tarek uh lacour is joining space time mind today tarek is a graduate student you're the first graduate student to appear on this podcast and uh he's a graduate student texas a&m university writing a philosophy phd dissertation under the awesome jose luis bermudez and the topic of the dissertation is illusionism. And uh, I asked Tarek to join us today in part because I know that he has an interest in illusionism, which is uh, pretty darn close to the correct view of consciousness. Um, but also, if you Google Tarek, you'll find a lot of like podcast appearances and, and YouTube appearances of Tarek ex- uh, discussing his life as a Mormon. And so I think it would be uh, really interesting to find out how you can be an illusionist and a Christian at the same time, or specifically an illusionist and a Mormon at the same time. That's really interesting. And I also do want to give a shout out to a podcast appearance Tarek made on, um, I forgot the name of Emerson Green's podcast that you appeared on. Counter Apologetics. Counter Apologetics. So that was a great episode, by the way. And uh, Emerson was uh, asking you similar sorts of questions that I want to uh, ask you today about, you know, how you get these things to hang together. Uh, so when this when this episode is published, I'll have links to uh, Emerson's um, podcast so people could go check that out, too. And what happened in that other podcast is is you all started with uh, Mormonism and then worked your way up to illusionism i'd like to do it in reverse order so let's start with illusionism um what is your problem why are you an illusionist what happened to you well uh let's start with kind of where i started in philosophy of mind so i when i got into philosophy as an undergraduate that was and i started talking to different people about different things a lot of people said tark you need to get into philosophy of mind And ironically, our 
philosopher of mind was on sabbatical for a while. So I didn't get to take the class for about a year and a half after that. But then we started with dualism and all the other standard theories of consciousness. And I was always a bit wondering like, okay, why when we are learning about this, why aren't we learning about the science of what's going on and these types of things? So one of the first papers we read that took the science really seriously was uh, Paul Churchland's Limitive Materialism and the Propositional Attitudes, which has got to be one of the top five most famous papers on the philosophy of mind, yeah, even though yeah. it's not about consciousness itself, it's about uh, propositional attitudes, something people on Twitter still have not figured out, but I digress. So <laughs> I uh, got into that and said, you know, I, I like this approach. And then I read Dennett's uh, Consciousness Explained, where he kind of defends illusionism before it's illusionism. Uh, then later, I read Keith Frankish's paper on illusionism as a theory of consciousness, and I thought, you know, there's something to that. And also, since I work in philosophy of science as well, I've gotten really into ontic structural realism. So for your viewers who don't know, two of the more prominent views of uh, scientific realism would be epistemic structural realism that says what science shows us is the structure of things but it doesn't tell us anything about their intrinsic nature. So people like Bertrand Russell, Galen Strawson proposed that view and lots of uh, qualia realists today will also espouse that since it will safeguard their view from the scientific inquiry in a way. But ontic structural realism says, yes, we agree with the, the epistemic structural realists that uh, Science just shows a structure, but that's because structure is all there is. So if it's not there, then just kind of let that go. And so I started working more on that. But also as I started looking more into the scientific study of consciousness, particularly global workspace theory and the global neuronal workspace theory, which uh, people like Bernard Bars and Stan Stanley Deheen, I think that's how you say his last name. I started saying like, yeah, something like that is... Uh, looks like that's the scientific consensus on consciousness too. In recent years, Michael Graziano and Anil Seth have given similar theories of consciousness where they don't like the term illusionism very much, but they're arguing for exactly pretty much the same thing. So that's kind of how I got there. So prior to this, this is an undergraduate uh, class, right? So prior to that, were you thinking about this stuff? Like as a little kid, did you wonder about inverted spectra or, or any of those sorts of problems? Yes, I, I was wondering, uh, I was asking myself the hard problem of consciousness without uh, asking, without understanding that's what the problem was. I remember at one time I was I actually had a I'd gotten I was getting the mail I'd gotten a bus ticket sadly you know, I don't know if those even exist anymore but I was thinking to myself okay why is it that I can like think about things and think about the external world but I'm made of the same stuff that's in this envelope and it's probably doesn't think about that like wh why does that why does that happen so I was thinking about that invert and I am into rainbows and I was then too, so I thought about those types of things. So I, I've always been wondering about consciousness and how it works, even before I knew exactly what consciousness was, if that makes any sense. Interesting. I yeah. think, uh, speaking for myself real quick on that, you know, 
er, like early childhood encounters with philosophy of mind, I think prior to reading any um, actual philosophy, uh, I had developed a broadly physicalistic view. I just, you know, just from a general kind of scientism and I came to the conclusion that like everything just had to reduce to microphysics, but I never like, I don't recall prior to reading philosophy explicitly worrying about anything along the lines of the hard problem of consciousness. Like I just took it for granted. Like, of course my consciousness is, is physical. Like it's, it feels like it's in here. Well, what is in here? Literally what's in here is guts, like a brain up here. Like that's literally what's inside. And, and so you have, you have three pounds of what will, what feels like oatmeal. <laughs> yeah. And you know, when I first started thinking about things that are like recognizably philosophy of mind topics, like really puzzling about like, well, how can this be? It wasn't like my own consciousness and how can it be brains? I got interested in AI. So yeah. my first exposure to a lot of this was the collection from Dennett and Hofstetter. And I just started and then around the same time, this is what had been high school. I was also reading Hofstetter's Good Elisha Bach. So the Hofstetter and Dennett, it had um, it had Nagel's What Is It Like to Be a Bat paper in there, but that didn't really catch my attention initially. I zeroed in about, on a bunch of AI stuff and was really intrigued by the thought that you could have something that isn't a brain give rise to a mind. And, it, and, and the, you know, it, it could be a computer or it could be like something really strange, like blocks Chinese nation. You've got all these people walkie talkies and they're replacing the activities of neurons. So I got really interested in that. And then, and then afterwards, by the time I was an undergraduate, I became obsessed with the, the Nagel version of the, what you would recognize as the hard problem where the Nagel stuff is explicitly stated in terms of objectivity versus subjectivity science seems to be objective but what it's like to be a bat consciousness that seems subjective how can these things fit together then i started you know getting into the the heart of the the hard problem and similar to you churchland and dennett were early influences i think i think that's kind of a natural that's naturally attractive to lots of undergraduates who are are exposed to philosophy of mind for the the same time. Not, not, not where I was. Oh yeah. yeah. No, I I think most of the, my classmates uh, started off and ended up as dualist. I was wow. I was one of the two or three hardline materialists. So now I'm sure if I took graduate seminar in philosophy of mind. That, and even if at Texas A&M, I, I would wonder, I, very few people would be as hardline physicalist as I am, because that I know for sure, because everyone in my department thinks I'm crazy. So, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I think if you if you have people that are already pre-selected to be mm-hmm. philosophical, like if you're looking to people that are now in graduate programs for philosophy, so a lot of them have a prior commitment to philosophy in general, which tends to be anti-scientistic. And, and you see a lot of anti-physicalism there. But at the undergraduate level, where you're teaching a lot of non-majors, people that maybe are, they're taking a philosophy of mind class just because it's interesting. Or maybe they're philosophy majors, but they're maybe not 
you know, committed to going off to graduate school. There, I, I see a lot more sympathy for brain centric approaches and a lot of enthusiasm for like Pat or Paul Churchland, just like, let's, let's science this, bring in the brains, problem solved. And, uh, I definitely had that kind of attitude. I remember, um, I remember having almost screaming matches with my metaphysics professor in undergraduate because we were um, studying reason, truth, and history by Hillary Putnam. And there's this problem about one way of putting it is it's kind of like an inverted spectrum problem, but only for meaning. So this problem of like, how is it that the mind can be about the world? And if you come at this physicalistically, how is it that the brain's states can be related to worldly states in such a way as to implement aboutness? I'm thinking about the cat on the mat. And Putnam comes along and says, well, whatever relation you could cook up that relates that brain state to a cat on the mat, we could cook up a different assignment of meanings whereby one in the same brain state actually means the cherry is on the tree and vice versa. So when you, <laughs> and I, I remember getting really kind of obsessed with that problem in part, cause I didn't see the problem. I was convinced <clears throat> of this like church landish version of uh, mind brain identity. And I was like, I just like, look, if the, br- the brain in the vat is like my brain, I'm thinking of the cat is on the mat, then, the brain in the vat is thinking that there's a cat in the mat. And my metaphysics professor gets so frustrated with me for just assuming this physicalism. You have to argue for that, man. Like you can't just assume it. I'm like, like argue, really argue for it. I mean, it's like two plus two equals four. Are you an idiot? Why do I have to convince you? (laughs) And so, uh, you know, how I feel about metaphysics, but I would agree with you, professor, you have to argue for physicalism rather than just assume it, but yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. My professor was right in that case, but anyway, um, as, as early autobiography goes, I think we have uh, a lot of similarities there. Um, but like illusionism is quite, that's a, that's a pretty stiff drink. Um, you know i'm i'm I a haggard drink. i wouldn't know I, i'm not a, i'm a mormon so i don't drink alcohol well you you ought to check in with them about the illusionism and find out if that counts as a controlled substance um <laughs> but anyway you know i'm i'm i've been through the consciousness wars and so i'm i'm haggard and jaded and and uh it's not surprising that some some uh old veteran such as myself would be attracted to a, a cynical and disturbing view like illusionism, but you're young and, and juicy and have so much of your life ahead of you. How did you wind up like attracted to what a lot of people think is just insane, right? Like you got Galen Strawson saying of Dennett's version of this, it's like the silliest thing ever, which mm-hmm. is. It, it, he, he's a, he's a prime example of people who run a limited, Limitivism and illusionism together, thinking they're one and the same kind of thing. But so the, is the question: like, how did I get there? Rather than yeah, why else? were you attracted like pretty early on to like what seems to be a very extreme view, which is illusionism? Why not I, something a little more intermediate as far as extreme? Like, why not identity theory? You know, that's now there, there was an evolution, but let's start here. So one of the first papers we read in philosophy of mind after we read. Nagel's paper, which I think is probably the standard paper to start with the philosophy of mind. What's it like to be a bat? 
and then reading Kathleen Aiken's uh, what's, what's it like to be boring and myopic after that. But I digress. So I, uh, one of the papers we read was David Chalmers facing up to the problem of consciousness. And I was just very unconvinced by the paper. He kept, because it, I'm always a bit suspicious of people say, well, science will just never be able to do X. Science won't do this. Science can't do it. And I'm just thinking, you know, neuroscience is only about 70, 80 years old. So I would be very suspicious about predicting what it can or can't do. And of course, it's changed so much in the last you know, just 30 years, which you know all too well as you're, you wrote with uh, Bill Bechtel, the philosophy and neuroscience reader. Um, so I actually, I, I started off as kind of a functionalist. And I guess in a way you can still be a functionalist and illusionist as functionalism is just saying that the mind can be realized in different physical mediums. But I think I, I like the, the brain identity theory and I'm still somewhat attracted to that. But the reason I was very just put off with the idea of qualia came from Dennett's argument that you can't have this thing that's, you know, intrinsically private, ineffable. These are kind of contradictory things. But more importantly, if you are an identity theorist and you're saying that the mind is just the brain, then nothing about your brain is private. A neurosurgeon or a neuroscientist can scan or get into everything that's in your brain. So there's nothing private there. So it, privacy seems to be this, and subjectivity seems to be the fundamental building blocks of qualia or phenomenal consciousness. And I just was not, uh, I was saying like, if you're a physicalist, it doesn't seem like there's any way for this qualia to be hiding. If you want to be a qualia realist, you should probably just be a dualist. And uh, then, you know, as I was reading, and that, uh, ironically, then as I was, you know, I was continuing reading, because I was in, I graduated in 2019, so I'm kind of, this is very recent for me. Uh, I was also reading people like Peter Carruthers and, uh, and uh, Michael Tai. And ironically, I wrote my thesis on like uh, illusion, uh, Limitivism versus reductionism versus non-reductive physicalism. So Ty was one of the reductive physicalists that I wrote about and said, okay, this is probably the view of the mind. If you're not going to go the field, the full Dennett, Churchland, Frankish view, this is probably where you're going to end up. But even this won't account for qualia. So if you're going to be a physicalist, it, there's just no way to keep the qualia there. And ironically, <laughs> I wrote that in 2019 and then Michael Ty is now a panpsychist, so I guess he agreed with me. I was just, I, I just took that a little. Head. I was, I was a bit, I was a bit flat floored when, that, when I heard that. But yeah, that's that's kind of how I got there. I just didn't see how you were going to be a physicalist and account for phenomenal consciousness. And then, of course, Peter Carruthers recently, in his uh, book uh, *Human Animal Minds*, says much of the same thing that quality irrealism, which is his way of saying illusionism, is the starting point if you're going to take science seriously. That's a direct quote from the book. So that's kind of how I got there. Uh, it wasn't it wasn't hard for me to swallow. I don't I don't think of philosophical positions as particularly hard to swallow and we'll uh, probably talk more about that when we get to the Mormonism point because certain problems that really bother certain other philosophers are just kind of almost yeah to me. So I'm just weird that way. That's interesting. Um, 
about that last point, I do want to come back in a little bit to to I'm going to pretend to not be an illusionist and be devil's at uh, a devil's advocate for quality realism. But real quick, I want it's to a little it's a little late for that, considering that you have the famous paper quality of quietism. But that, that's OK. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I'm, I'm a full professor. I could do what I want. Yes, that's true. I, you know, I could even just announce today that I'm a panpsychist and I'll still get paid. But anyway, I'll, um, I'll still so, be your friend. So, oh, excellent. I think that's a good attitude. Um, I think people should be able to philosophically disagree and still yeah. uh, be friends. But anyway, um, it kind of caught my eye uh, or ear that your remark towards the end there about how um, I forgot exactly how you put it, but you don't, as I would say, you don't get very worked up about certain philosophical controversies or, or you could easily believe either side. I, that's not the way you put it, but that seems, I mean, do you recognize that as what you were, were saying? What, what I was saying is I'm not, if, if a view seems extreme, then that's just, so be it. I don't, I just care about whether there's good reasons to believe it's true or not. Oh, 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 I see. Okay. Now, when I was talking, what I was referring to there is there are certain problems, say in philosophy of religion, like the problem of evil, which to me don't seem to be problems at all. So that's what I'm talking about. There are certain pr- problems philosophers get worked up with yeah. that I just, I'm just not. So... Yeah, now, so. and, 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 you know, problem of evil, I think I'm one of two people I can think of that say that Peter Van Enwagen also says that he doesn't, it doesn't really bother him either, but interesting. I, uh, we are the minority, but well, we can come back to that. So that's just kind of the way it is. There's certain philosophical problems <laughs> that philosophers have really, or at least some philosophers have really strong opinions about. I'm really kind of puzzled, like how you could be so puzzled or, or so strongly committed. So, you know, for example, um, in uh, metaphysics, there's this problem of um, whether mereological composition is unrestricted or not. If mereological composition is unrestricted, then any, any collection of things, no matter how remote or unrelated, nonetheless form a whole. So like, you know, your, your left eyebrow and, and my, um, uh, my favorite guitar are a whole of which the proper parts are your left eyebrow and, and my favorite guitar. And that whole exists as long as those two things exist. And it doesn't matter where those things go, whether they're separated um, by light years, whether they causally interact or not. That's a thing. Um, and some people just think that that's outrageous that like, no, there, there couldn't be such things. Whatever things are, they have to have like more unity amongst their parts. So like the guitar, that exists and it has parts. But this thing that is made out of the guitar and the eyebrow, no. That, like, and, and to me, it seems like, well, I mean, I can kind of, you can go either way on that. I kind of understand what both sides are claiming. And, and most of what you would want to do in life, you could kind of get by either way. Just kind of mentally translate the one way of talking into the other way of talking and but then there's other stuff like for example you brought up the problem of evil for me i think the problem of evil is a big a really big problem although i'm not a i don't know the ins and outs of the problem of evil the way i I know the ins and outs of the hard problem of consciousness i don't specialize in philosophy religion but i'm just like yeah that's I, i i tend to think that the basic 
problem of evil argument is actually a really strong argument. Um, and most of what I think about God kind of pivots around that a few other arguments. And I'm sure like a serious philosophy religion person would see my views in that neighborhood as just amateurish garbage. <laughs> like, I, you know, I might as well just be some uh, man in the street. Um, but uh, it is interesting what we're, we're, we're committed to and, and what we can just kind of like, you know, entertain without getting our passions up much. I, I do, I do personally think of um, with the philosophy of mind, phys, like some kind of physicalistic monism, like has got to be dualism. It's just no way I'm ready to, I'm ready to fight <laughs> any dualist. And I could, you know, I could kind of pretend I'm a dualist just to entertain certain things, but mostly I just don't, I can't, I can't wear that hat. Um, anyway, so I wanted to come back to so, like the, the basic thing about uh, illusionism and the basic sort of dialectic that you see erupts all over the place, especially in kind of popular venues like Twitter. You say as an illusionist, there is no phenomenal consciousness. I, as just a regular old person, hear the word consciousness and it sounds like you're denying consciousness and isn't that nuts like isn't it just super obvious for example that i'm conscious and that you're conscious and i consciously perceive the patch of orange Mm -hmm. what's what's the deal dude how can you deny something so obvious so could you say some like what, what do you think the illusionist best response to that sort of the, the first thing I would say Sorry. is just because, just because something seems obvious doesn't mean it's true. Lots of things have seemed obvious to lots of very smart people, and they've turned out to be false. So here's a good example. <clears throat> you and I are both admirers of David Hume. He said it was just obvious that Black people were intellectually inferior and that we could see that because Black people never had empires or so big places of education or things like that, only the white race has done that. So it seemed obvious to him, obviously, but that's not true. So that's one. Um, that's kind of the, that's an easier one. Also, when we say that there's no phenomenal consciousness taking the matter a little more seriously, we're just saying there's a certain aspect of consciousness that's illusory. Uh, we're not, I don't deny that I'm seeing you right now that we're having this conversation. So I don't deny what Ned Block would call access consciousness. And that's the kind of consciousness just of being you know, aware of an environment or something like that. Something machines can also have, which ultimately as a physicalist, I think we are just very complicated, moist robots. So that's one, but I think a lot of people- Hold on a second. I wanna make sure I write down complicated, moist robots. Uh, Cause that is, that is an excellent turn of phrase. Uh, complicated, moist robots. Yes. So please continue. So, uh, so I don't deny that we are having this conversation that you, when you go outside, you see colors and things like that. What we're denying is there's this kind of, there, there's the way the world seems to me that it doesn't seem to you. And that's ultimately ontologically subjective as John Searle says, and we're and I'm and the illusionist says, well, 
if you're a physicalist and you say that everything's physical and made of what we study in physics and neuroscience and chemistry, then that does not map onto uh, any scientific paradigm. So there must you, you must be making a mistake somewhere. Now, that doesn't mean that you're not having the experiences. It just means that there's certain things about them that you're adding to them that that doesn't exist. So we're saying that this private unanswerable uh, um, on, on state of consciousness that you have, that's what we think is the illusion. And uh, of course, there are lots of things, and, and this is something else to remember, some people say, well, how could I be, uh, be mistaken about this? You know, Descartes says a lot of the same thing of, well, I can't doubt that I exist I, if I'm even thinking about it. Well, we should also remember that the brain is for allostasis. In other words, to keep your uh, everything, uh, basically to be an energy manager and things like that. It's not there to exactly, you're using an organ to understand the world that isn't, designed for that and the brain plays lots of tricks on us all the time about very very minor things so that just because you you have that uh, feeling doesn't mean that therefore it's there I mean when I drive on the road I, I'm sure you've seen this all the time if I look up down the road a little bit I always think the water that there's it's wet up there even though I know it's not so your brain plays lots of tricks on you and that this is one of the tricks it does is that this this idea of consciousness is private ineffable can't be studied scientifically although i don't think so much it's that i think within philosophy of mind the reason that we're so convinced by that is because david chalmers has argued so well for it that people just sure that there's a hard problem although it was nice to see and i don't know if you saw the recent phil papers uh survey yeah, so yeah. Uh, the people who uh, say that there's no hard problem with consciousness, we are increasing. Uh, we're still the minority. We'll, we'll probably always be the minority, but it's it's getting some pushback and uh, not not just within the philosophical community, but within the scientific community with people I mentioned, like Anil Seth saying no hard problem. And Antonio Damasio is another one who's also saying no hard problem. So. That's the idea. Basically, I understand that that's the starting point, but like any other philosophical or scientific view, you have to look at it, you have to be able to scrutinize it, and it seems, and this is something I think that's very compelling for illusionism. So, even though illusionism is, you know, a relatively new view, uh, I mean, you could trace it all the way back to Gilbert Ryle if you wanted to go that far, but I would think of Ryle more as a behaviorist in some sense. You would say you, you, it's interesting in 2022 is kind of the center of gravity is illusionism and panpsychism now, because it seems now people are going, OK, either consciousness is everything or we just don't have it. So it's maybe it's not as fringe as people might at first think. <clears throat> so I wanted to uh, go back to your um, the, the your initial response, which was twofold. Uh, one of them was to say, you know, obvious things can be wrong, seemingly obvious things can be false. And you don't really know whether you're being confronted with the obvious or the merely seemingly obvious, which I think is a good response, but I want to push back against it. And another thing you said, which is also a good response, but I also want to push back against that, was to say, look, 
let's use this distinction from Ned Block between phenomenal consciousness and access consciousness mm-hmm. to clarify what illusionists are denying. Illusionists are denying phenomenal consciousness, but there's still lots and lots of consciousness left over. It's that access consciousness stuff. It's the stuff that would would be consistent with the representational computational theory of mind. It would be consistent with functionalism. It would be consistent with analyzing consciousness as a kind of representation or a kind of instance of intentionality or aboutness. Let me start with the thing about obviousness. I think that, that you're exactly right. Like just saying something is obvious doesn't really carry much weight. I mean, it, you might get your buddies to slap you on the back, but it's not really moving the ball forward in any serious way to point that out. I think, however, people, when they're talking about consciousness, might have a slightly uh, stronger um, stance that they can help themselves to because of the phenomenon itself allows for certain kinds of uh, maybe a special case. It's not just obvious, but it's obvious for certain reasons that are internal to it so you know by analogy um consider the uh, descartes cogito he's uh, descartes isn't simply driving up to my house and shouting you can't doubt this but there's implicit this explanation of why you can't doubt it right so the thought i think is its own truth maker the thought there's some broccoli like that would be made true by something separate from it. You could have the thought without the broccoli. And, and so for all you know, maybe there is no broccoli. And, and so you don't know, you think there's broccoli, but you don't know there's any broccoli. Maybe you're wrong that there's broccoli. But when you think, I think, boom, it's true. And uh, so it's guaranteed to be true. And from there, like you could say, well, I'm certain. I can't doubt it. Um, so there's this kind of, because of this self uh, pointing, you get a special case whereby it's not just obvious, but you also have in hand an explanation for why it would be, uh, if not obvious, at least have other epistemic features like indubitability or certainty. And someone might try to do a similar sort of thing with consciousness um, and say like, well, I'm not simply here to tell you that it's obvious, but I think it's, this, it's, it's obvious for reasons that we can expect would flow from its nature the way that the thought I think can't be doubted because it just, it makes itself true. Um, so what if someone were to press you and say, well, look, consciousness, it seems special. Uh, you know, th- and this is a charitable way of reading people that say like, ah, you're telling me there's an illusion. Well, if there's an illusion, you have to have consciousness, right? Cause mm-hmm. who's being deceived or is it the very act or mental process of, of presenting something illusory presupposing that there is a presenting and isn't that um, what, what phenomenal consciousness is supposed to be. Um, well, let, let me stop there and, and hear what you've got to say about that. Well, part of this is almost presupposing what Dennett calls the Cartesian theater, that there's this kind of, privilege access that you're seeing these things on but let's go back a little bit uh again the illusionist does not deny that you're having experiences and that there's something happening and something going on what we're denying is the certain properties of this experience that they're uh, and they're totally private ineffable those types of things so we're not denying 
what your uh, that you that you're having experiences. So there's really you know this is kind of missing the point if a person brings this up. It's like well there, there must be some type of like yes we already agree there's access consciousness. Uh, what we're denying is this uh, this kind of special consciousness, if you will. Uh, so yeah, I, I understand uh, that, and ultimately, I think this is really there. There does seem to be. I, I think some people would think we have a kind of we're wired to be dualists. It would seem, although Paul Bloom disputes that. So. And this is in part because we live within a certain type of culture, namely we're still very influenced by the Judeo-Christian Islamic view of the world, which is very dualistic. And we think in those terms without even <clears throat> noticing it, such as we always distinguish between mind and brain as though they couldn't be the same thing. So while I agree that you're having the experiences, I don't deny that you, when you step on a nail, you'll feel pain or when you, uh, if you are a qualia realist, if you're reading a paper by myself or Keith Frankish or Dan Dennett, you'll probably get an aneurysm. Totally believe that those happen. But uh, what, what needs to be established is that this is just off limits to scientific. I mean, re really what the heart of it is, is saying is there a part of you that's off limits to scientific uh, inquiry? And it seems the more that we drill down into the brain and into, as you love, AI, we're starting to be able to replicate these things, starting to feel like qualia is retreating, which is why lots of the qualia realists are starting to push more to uh, panpsychism, where there's just no way we'll be able to scientifically get, get rid of it. So, but if you have to retreat that way, then we're kind of making the, the push that we want. And of course, then if you go to panpsychism, there's, I think, powerful arguments against that as well. Although I think panpsychism is something I, it's a, it's a view worth taking seriously as people like David Chalmers is sympathetic to it, Galen Strawson, and uh, I think Tom Nagel is also open to it these days. So, and I, I guess it's a good thing as well. I, I, panpsychism, what I think one of its true charms is you can take it in a very materialistic way or a non-materialist way. So it's, it, it kind of oh, it kind of gets dualists and materialists to kind of come together that way. But yeah, that's how I would respond to. So to I want to I want to <clears throat> circle back to panpsychism mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> later. But let me let me try again to continue being a, a qualia realist and giving you a hard time uh, about illusionism. So um, that's what that's what I'm here for. <laughs> And mostly when I think like these days, when I think of a qualia realist, I think of Richard Brown, um, who will be coming, uh, be interviewing Richard Brown so again soon. Um, stay tuned, everybody, for the Richard Brown interview. But anyway, um, so I wanted to come back to um, attempting to push back against your illusionism. And of course, I'm faking it. I'm not, I'm not a qualia realist. But um, if I were to imitate a qualia realist, uh, one thing I might say is like, let's go back to that Ned Block phenomenal access distinction. One way of characterizing that distinction is to say with respect to phenomenal consciousness, that's where we're dealing with what it's like. Mm -hmm. 
And when you tell me as an illusionist that there's no such thing as phenomenal consciousness, I, as a quality realist, am hearing that as you're telling me there's no such thing as what it's like. Like, so like this paper, what is it like to be a bat? Really, there's nothing it's like to be a bat. Like, what do you what are you saying with respect to what it's like? Isn't it true, obviously, or just you know, um, non problematically that there's something it's like? Like, there's something it's like for me to see oranges, and what it's like for me to see oranges is more similar to what it's like to see traffic cones um, than uh, to see fresh spilled blood. Right? We understand that. Um, in a pretty straightforward and unproblematic way. And, and insofar as we do understand that, don't we therefore understand phenomenal consciousness and it's unproblematic phenomenal consciousness? Like, uh, how can you deny that there's something it's like? Well, you know, a good friend of mine, uh, his name's Tomas, he talked about, so if illusionism is true, then you should have no problem in principle, saying that when you have surgery, you shouldn't ask for uh, pain-reducing drugs because it's, there's nothing it's like to feel pain or something like that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so I, I, I get the, it's a very, it's a very powerful intuition. And this is something I should bring up because this is related. So illusionists would say, now this is a pl- place I, I break with Keith Frankish. I'm actually writing an abstract for a paper for the neural mechanisms conference about this, but he says, okay, let's take illusionism to be true. We still have the problem. He calls it the hard illusion problem or just the illusion problem saying like, okay, but it still seems like there's something it's like for something to be something. And why do we, and why is that so powerful? So, it seems this is just basically the mirror image of the hard problem. The illusion says, well, it's not there, but why does it seem like it is? So they're just, just share the intuition of the quality realist and say, hey, yeah, we agree that there's something it seems like, but we're just, they, the, the illusionists just say, yeah, it seems that way, it's not there. We don't know why it seems that way, but it's there. Then the uh, realist will say, yeah, it seems to be there and it's there. So you have that. Um, what I would say is, yes, it is, there is uh, something it's like to see, but you, uh, and of course, this is the, the famous Mary argument as, you know, she's learning everything about the brain, but then she, about color, and then she goes outside, does she learn anything new? So yes, we can explain perception and everything purely on the level of uh, brain and nervous activity. And uh, there's no special stuff we need to add on top of that once we've explained the function we've kind of explained what needs to be explained would be my first thing this is why i was always suspicious of nagel's paper even though it's phenomenally argued is he doesn't take account of any neuroscience of any psychology or anatomy or anything he just says like look we could figure that all out but there would still be this problem it's like um Let's let's do the science first, and then let's see if there's still a problem. And of course, we can explain that physiology rather well now, and we can ex- explain the physiology of your eye. In fact, this is one of my professors. He works on perception. That's kind of his area of research. We can even explain, you know, certain why it's why certain things seem the way that they do, but 
they're really not. Again, remember that the brain is playing tricks on you all the time because it's not designed to not play tricks. It's just trying to maintain being alive and maintaining energy structure. But yes, we can understand that this illusion is very powerful. We don't deny that. But we would still say, considering that we can explain all of the behavior and all of the uh, phenomena without appealing to this extra thing, it's up to that person to explain like, well, why do we have, what is it, what is this thing that we're not explaining that needs to be explained where we can functionally and uh, organistically explain everything else? So that would be kind of my response there, would be within, and of course, within, and I think that one of the powerful arguments for this would be, so if it seems that as neuroscience keeps pushing further and further, when you have these newer models of consciousness, whether it's take Michael Graziano and Neil Seth, they're very different models of consciousness, but they keep denying qualia, same thing, global workspace theory, kind of the same thing. They keep pushing the hard problem away. So that would be kind of the, the idea there. It just seems like there's not, philosophers are very good at deciding a priori what's a problem rather than looking at the evidence and then seeing if there is a problem still. And this seems to be one of those problems that we've kind of decided is a problem, but if we let science do its job, as Pat Churchland says at the end of her paper, um, um, the hornswoggle problem, then these problems tend to sort themselves out. Although I would admit that there's still a lot of questions of consciousness, but I, this just really isn't one of them. So, so let me, let me try this one more time but with a slightly different angle. So okay. once again, trying to defend qualia, and I feel dirty doing that, but. <laughs> gotta... you, sh- you shouldn't feel dirty. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a, I mean, I, I think it's a serious inquiry. It's just, uh, once you put it to the scientific scrutiny, it's not going to, not going to pop for you. So there's, there's one way of characterizing qualia realism, whereby, uh, or, or <clears throat> realism about phenomenal consciousness whereby um, what it means to be a realist about phenomenal consciousness is something that would exclude functionalism, that would exclude representationalism. But there's another way of doing it. This is is how I tend to hear, um, for example, Richard Brown, when he says he's a a qualia realist, is to not really emphasize that, that characterization, that negative characterization that says, well, phenomenal consciousness can't be functional, but to give this positive characterization of qualia and or phenomenal consciousness in terms of what it's like and, and, and really not saying anything else, just saying like, well, look, I mean, this is what we mean by qualia, what we mean by phenomenal consciousness, that there is something it's like, for, for instance, something it's like to be a bat or for another instance, something it's like to see red or to, to taste wine. And, um, if I wouldn't you, know about the last one, but yes, it's uh, well, uh grape juice. <laughs> it's Just, like grape yeah. juice. Uh, so I... um, the, uh, the the certain functionalists or certain representationalists that would say, like, look, here's what it's like. What it's what it's like is um, if you have, a, for example, a higher order thought that says, I, "I'm seeing green right now," then what it's like is it's like you're seeing green 
whether you're actually seeing green or not, maybe that's hallucination or whatever, but the, what it's like for you is the way it subjectively seems to you. And, and the way things subjectively seem to you is just the way this higher thought represents yourself and the world to be. And so in some sense, what you're doing is reducing phenomenal consciousness to certain ex- examples of access consciousness. So um, in some sense, it's not phenomenal. If you're, do- if you're, if you're doing that, then you've, you've given up on phenomenal consciousness if you're reducing it to access. Because oh, but okay, but there's another way you could <laughs> just pitch it and say, like, look, I, I still think consciousness exists. There's a thing from Quine, uh, and I think it comes up in Word and Object, where he Quine talks about basically the indistinguishability of reductionism and eliminativism in the broadest sense not a limited I think that's in his paper mental about, states too yeah possibly my memory is foggy it's been over a decade i think since i've looked at this but the the i'm remembering it from being in word and object but i don't know um i don't know for sure but the basic i the the basic idea is conveyed in terms of this um little short story about two scientists the sci- the, the two scientists have a disagreement and um, there's two different ways of characterizing their disagreement. One is that they're disagreeing about whether a, such and such particle exists. So um, one of them says, uh, this negatively charged particle exists. And this other one says, well, no, it, it doesn't. There's no, because there is no negatively charged particle. So therefore, the particle you're talking about doesn't exist. That's one way of characterizing it. But Quine argues, you could characterize it without any loss or cost in this other way. They are both talking about this particle, which happens to exist. They're just disagreeing about what description is true of the particle. They're disagreeing about whether that particle is negatively charged or not. So you could, if you wanted to, advertise your view of consciousness as an illusionist and say there's no such thing as phenomenal consciousness, there's no such thing as qualia. Or you could equally well present yourself in realist language and say there is such a thing as consciousness. It just turns out that so-called phenomenal consciousness, which is real, is really a kind of access consciousness. There really are qualia. They're just not private. They're not ineffable. They're not intrinsic, but if, they're there if that's anyway. The, if that's the case, it's no longer an interesting problem. Because if you, if you, well, let's, I, now I haven't listened to your other Richard Brown episode yet. I'd love to talk to him about though. If you reduce phenomenal consciousness to access consciousness, then it's, I mean, what makes qualia interesting, it seems, is this idea that it's private, ontologically subjective, and things like that? If he's, if you're going to say, well, there are these things that exist that they're just parts of access consciousness that we don't understand, but we could explain them fully in those terms. Well, fine, but then there there ceases to be a hard problem, and this ceases to be an interesting question. But to your point, I because I I love that uh, point you made of Quine. He's a hero of mine. Uh, he says um, it's in, it's on mental entities. He says to repudiate mental entities is not to deny that we sense or even that we are conscious. It is merely to report and try to describe these facts without assuming entities of a mental kind. I think that's what you were talking about, right? So, um, 
Yeah, the thing I had in mind was specifically about particles and and um, yeah. and because it, it seems like what you're talking about there. If you, I mean, I don't think any illusionist denies the brain or anything like that, but they're just. It, it seems as though this person who's a quality realist will say, okay, there's just certain parts of the brain that once we understand the function, we'll understand why. It, it seems we have this this feature of our minds and if so i mean to one extent i'm i i have i have myself wondered sometimes what's the difference between eliminativism and reductionism um they, they certainly are very close um but i think the eliminativist is making the claim like you're not going to be able to do that you're either going to have to say it's an illusion and it's not there or it's or it's there, but we might not be. It, it seems almost as what you're what you're saying is almost kind of a mysterianism, saying, "Well, it's there, but and we could be, but maybe we won't be able to. It, it, we could, in principle, reduce it to access consciousness, but we probably won't." Um, but like oh, I said, I, if you let, but let's say that you could, if you reduce phenomenal consciousness to access consciousness, then there's no really longer a hard problem. And then the illusionist just doesn't have any they say about it. It's just we'll all be one happy family after that. So the the if, the, if we if we re, if we reduce everything to access consciousness, then yeah, I don't need to designate myself an illusionist because we're all illusionists at that point, <laughs> or we're all qualia realists. So let me <laughs> or or a qualia realist about something that's very like as it. It's like it's it's it'll almost be like being a realist about uh, glial cells or something like that at that point. So um, let me let me give this one more shot, and also keeping. Am I evading the question? I think you're doing a great job of (laughs) evading the question. Uh, No, no, you're not evading the question. Um, Let me let me try this though. So um, back to Klein. There's the Klein Duhem thesis which you could state as something like you can never, there's never a knockdown argument against anything. There's never a disproof of anything because someone could always try to respond to that disproof uh, or attempted refutation with certain auxiliary hypotheses that will basically make the continued assertion logically consistent with the so-called counter evidence. So, you know, one way to put this in a kind of schematic way, um, someone initially describes qualia as having necessary conditions, A, B, and C. Then their opponent comes along and shows that at least one of those necessary conditions doesn't obtain. And they try to conclude from that, that therefore qualia don't exist. The, the, the qualia lover could either just roll over and play dead or they could change what they think the entailments are of the existence of qualia they could say well i guess we were wrong about like needing a maybe a turns out not to be a necessary condition after all this seems to be what a lot of qualia realists did in response to dennett's quining qualia paper at least it seems to me that a lot of them, they said like, well, we never, well, we never thought that was true of quality anyway, which may have been disingenuous or may have been accurate, but nonetheless, like you have a lot of people saying like, well, 
yeah, sure. Dennis paper was, was great, but qualia don't have to be intrinsic or private or, or ineffable. Um, so that's a, the, the, you can see that as kind of hanging with this <coughs> Quine Duhem ish observation. Um, so why not then um, if at the end of the day, you're going to say the hard problem is bullshit anyway, regardless of whether you're an illusionist, I, I or, wouldn't, I wouldn't go that far or a reductionist. <laughs> you you want to say like, ah, it's not really a hard problem. It's not really that hard. or It's not really that problem. So why not, why not go with the, the conservative route where the conservative route is you conserve qualia talk. You just keep, you keep on asserting the quality exists. You just change what you thought the necessary conditions of quality are so that it is no longer, they're no longer disproven by uh, a failure of privacy or a failure of intrinsicality or so on. So do you notice that in your description, this has moved from being something that's obvious to being something that's ad hoc? So that would be one problem. <laughs> it would seem, okay, well, like the original, I mean, ultimately what the illusionist attacking is this kind of intuition of being obvious. So if you've moved it all the way back to this, we've kind of already seeded all the ground we wanted there anyway. Also, I think is, is making sure I understand what your question is. Is this kind of the approach that you would have described as someone like Jesse Prince? Who yeah, so as I... You? He, he's a very he's he's a he's a, he's as reductive if not more so than dan dennett or keith frankish but he says like i just want to keep this this talk around because it seems like all you're going to do is recollapse into the same problem so let's just kind of keep it there but say that we'll reorient the problem a little bit with the with the brain when we know more about the brain yeah so you know um i think a lot of uh people that tend towards anti-physicalism would would look at Jesse's work and say that's not really consciousness. That's not consciousness. A zombie could have that, so therefore that isn't consciousness. But um, I think the way Jesse sees the view and the way um, sim- sympathetic fellow physicalists see it, uh, this is a proposal for what consciousness really is. And by consciousness, he means phenomenal consciousness. Although he's not going to take on board a lot of the things that are attributed to phenomenal consciousness that would seem to rapidly lead to anti-physicalism. Um, so for Jesse, phenomenal consciousness is like these attended intermediate level representations. There's these states of neural activation in these hierarchical networks. Um, when those states are modulated by an intentional, uh, <clears throat> intentional, uh, attentional activity that's what what counts as consciousness so what what is phenomenal consciousness it's these these patterns of activation in these particular portions of these particular networks that's what it is is it private no Uh, like in theory someone could scan your brain and, and what they're scanning is your phenomenal consciousness and uh and they would be scanning all of it there would be nothing left out um so yeah he's not an illusionist in the sense that he's he's keeps asserting the existence of of qualia does he mean the same thing by qualia that 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 chalmers does i don't think so no not according to chalmers and chalmers (laughs) is going to accuse him of changing the topic or 
but yeah, like like I said at the beginning, I don't think there's as much, I, I think the illusionist what they're doing is just saying the quiet part out loud. They're saying, look, this it's just not there, and then the reductionist will just say, well, not it's not really there, but let's not remove the language, and just for just to have a uh, a bit of a treaty here, the illusionist is not necessarily committed to eliminating the discourse, the language, uh, as much as they're just saying, well, we can deny the phenomena, but you can kind of keep the, the language of qualia or whatever. I mean, Keith Frankish talks about this in his paper, illusionism is a theory of consciousness, because illusionists don't have to be full of limitivists in saying, we need to not only eliminate the phenomena, we need to eliminate the discourse and things like that. I mean, this is very similar to anti-realism about morality. Should we if, if you're an anti-realist, like, okay, you're saying there aren't any moral facts, but do we need to change the discourse too? A lot of people just say, no, we can keep the discourse about right and wrong, just not attach ontological <clears throat> status to it. Uh, but furthermore, it, it would seem to be the same. Uh, if you're doing this dance around of trying to keep quality up, but reducing it to brain states or these mid-level representations, it would almost be the similar thing to the zombie hypothesis of saying, okay, you have a zombie that has all, has all the features of access consciousness, but no phenomenal consciousness. And then you have this other person who has the phenomenal consciousness and they're all, there's no physical difference between the two. And then, so my question would be then, well, then why are you asserting this other thing? If there's no, if it makes no physical difference. If you're a physicalist and it makes no physical difference, it's just the same as saying it's not there if it has no causal effect on anything um however this kind of goes back to what i was saying earlier what this would try to preserve if you want to preserve phenomenal consciousness you'll need to be some type of a dualist because the physical the physicalist will seem to kind of eat, a, eat away at quality until it's no longer there there won't be any uh to use the term with keith frankish there won't be any diet qualia which is what you seems like we're trying to preserve <clears throat> So uh, let me switch gears uh, slightly, but still uh, keeping up the the faux um, adversity. Uh, it's okay. <laughs> one thing I like to do with various theories of consciousness is is test them against the the central thought experiments that usually prop up the main moves in this debate. So. Um, you know, when when someone when I read someone who claims to have a theory of consciousness, one of my main questions is like, well, okay, so what does this theory of consciousness say about Mary, or what does this theory of consciousness say about zombies? Uh, what 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 is it like? What does it say about inverted spectra? So, like with respect to Mary, like how it is your theory that Mary learns something? when she sees red for the first time or is your theory that no, she doesn't learn anything. What, what do you say about zombies? Are zombies conceivable or you just don't care or are zombies <laughs> inconceivable? Well, so I would like to walk, let's walk hand in hand through some of these, these thought experiments. You want to start with Mary? Uh, well, to, to the zombie one, I'll just say, you know what I'm going to say to that. I'm a, I'm a son of Daniel Dennett. I don't, I think we're all zombies anyway. So yes, zombies aren't just conceivable. They're, they're walking around every day. This is why I never dress up as one for Halloween. 
It's like, why, <laughs> why, why dress up as one for what you are? Let's, but let's go to Mary. <clears throat> so if I understand the thought experiment correctly, and this is one uh, that uh, is it? Uh, it's Ned. No, not Ned. No, David Jackson, right? Frank. Frank Jackson. Frank Jackson. Like, nope, David Jackson's okay. pretty good. Gotcha. Frank Jackson. Uh, yeah, he and I have actually dialogued about that, so he doesn't accept this argument anymore. No. But, so, uh, but it's it's a very it's a famous one, of course, that people like Philip Goff, who's the, one of the main proponents of panpsychism, use all the time. So Mary is uh, blind, but she knows everything there's to know about the color red. Is it? Yeah. So she knows all the right. all, everything physical that You're there right. is to know about the uh and then she goes out of the room physical and then she environment sees for the first time right yeah, yeah. Okay. the ba- the basics are she's never ever had a red experience mm-hmm. but she knows all sorts of stuff about what happens in human brains when they have mm-hmm. red experiences she knows all sorts of stuff about what's happening in the environment like mm-hmm. she knows about what sorts of things reflect red light and emit red light where red light is defined in terms of like wavelength or something like that right um, right so she knows so all to put the causal it simply, she knows yeah. all the causal one very simple it. way of putting it although this runs into certain logical problems uh if you get into like philosophy of math or philosophy of logic type stuff you might say she knows all the physical facts mm-hmm. let's put it like that. she knows all the physical facts mm-hmm. <clears throat> and then there's this thought experiment where um okay she sees red for the first time She's got all this awesome scientific knowledge, but she sees red for the first time. And then the thought experiment is to ask yourself, well, what should, what would her reaction to that be? And, and I think people are supposed to have the, the run the thought experiment in such a way that they conclude that she would learn something new. She would specifically learn what it's like to see red. And uh, if that's I, yeah. factual knowledge, then it turns out that's a fact that can't be a physical fact because she already knew all the physical facts. So if there's mm-hmm. some, um, I would say, so I, there's a couple I, different, logically, yeah. there's a couple different moves you can make there. One is to deny that knowing what it's like is a kind of knowing of a fact. Another thing you could deny is that she learns anything at all when she sees red for the first time. <clears> you can, um, so there's 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 several different different moves um and i'm curious what your favored move is with respect to the mary argument you mentioned the quine duem thesis that no theory is ever fully falsified uh, the same the same thing is mentioned by the person i'll refer to now david lewis where he says no philosophical theory is ever fully put to waste but what i would say that mary <laughs> gets is the difference between knowledge by description and knowledge by acquaintance. So to take that same type of argument, if uh, my favorite animal is an elephant, I didn't actually see, now I've read books and knew all types of things about elephants, how big they are, their, their eating patterns and all that other stuff. But I've never actually physically seen one until I went to the zoo with my wife in 2018. So it was a long time. So then now then I was actually acquainted with the elephant but therefore now that's all we can explain that all within the physical 
uh, uh, nature there, but we don't have to add a non-physical thing there. That's one. The other would be maybe what you're um, saying there might be that just understanding all the causal things doesn't give you an experience of that thing. Similar to Pat Churchill uses a very similar argument of, I can know everything about what it's like to be pregnant, but until I'm actually pregnant, it's there, there's a certain part of this that I'm missing, but that doesn't require you to bring anything non-physical into the, um, into right. the equation. So that would be, that'd be kind of my, the difference between knowledge by description, knowledge by acquaintance and different types of kind of causal interaction as uh, Pat Church would point out. I don't, I, and again, like I said, if the original person who proposed the experiment is basically saying the same thing now, I don't know. I, I'm not just, I'm not sure why it's a problem. Like if it's been solved so, for them, should have been solved for us too. So one problem with the, <clears throat> with the different knowledge kinds of responses. So mm-hmm. of which the knowledge by acquaintances is, is one move. You could like one version of that. A different one is, <clears throat> is to say that it's know how instead of knowing that. Um, but focusing now just on the knowledge by acquaintance response one problem with that is that I've, a lot of people who have this intuition that Mary gains knowledge, they have this intuition that she gains knowledge in some sort of thick sense, whereby it would make sense for her to say, aha, or to, to feel surprised, like, oh, wow, I didn't know it was going to be like that. So, you know, if you think of other sorts of examples, forget about red just uh you know um the um i forgot your example was it a person a celebrity uh or a place oh it was an elephant elephants are but not a celebrity elephant (laughs) so if i I don't uh yeah i've uh i've never i don't think i've met any celebrities (laughs) And oh, okay. I, the only the only celebrity elephant I know is Dumbo. So, and I, he's not a real elephant, so I can't meet him. So I've met celebrities. I've had conversations with celebrities, and uh, so prior oh. to meeting Bill Murray, I knew all sorts of facts about Bill Murray. Um, and then I met Bill Murray, and um, I had no idea that he was tall. I did. I never really thought of him as especially tall. And then when I met him, I was at an airport, we were both standing and then we started talking to each other and I was just like really struck by how tall this guy is. Aha. How how tall is he? It's weird. When I talked to him, I, he seemed like I'm six feet tall. He seemed like he was six and a half feet tall or maybe six, eight. Like he just seemed giant. Um, And then I went and Googled it. I, I think he's only six one, so maybe he's just he has a, a really big personality. <clears throat> but now imagine this: um, imagine I knew ahead of time um, that he was tall. Like I like be, like just by coincidence, the day I met him at the airport, uh, like the day before, I was I just happened to be reading his Wikipedia article. I, I read how tall he was. And I, I had that in my mind. I was thinking about it for some weird reason. And then boom, there he is. Um, I'm a, now I'm acquainted for the first time with his height. Previously, I read about it. I knew it by description. But now I could see with my own eyes 
uh, how tall he is. Um, it doesn't seem like there would be an aha or a feeling of like, oh, now I know. Um, the, a, another similar sort of res- response is the one that uh, leans on analogies to indexical or demonstrative uh, representations or locutions. So I, I've like prior to being in Paris, I could think about Paris. I could think about things being in Paris, but I can't think of things being in Paris as things being here. I only get to say the Eiffel Tower is here if I'm in Paris when I say it. Um, but when I get to Eif- the Eiffel Tower, when I get to Paris for the first time, after already having learned via book learning all these facts about what's in Paris, um, when I get there for the first time, for the first time I'm licensed to say that it's here. I'm here, baby. But it doesn't seem like that would come along with any feeling of having learned something or like an aha or now I know. Um, so I think the the different knowing responses kind of don't really do justice to that and that's why i'm I'm attracted to the view that says in no interesting sense of knowledge does she gain any knowledge she knows ahead of time the thing that we're talking about and that is what it's like to see red i i uh, you know your analogy of paris is one that uh, Hume talks about in the early pages of the treatise, but so very interesting thing, good thing there. Uh, I mean, I, re- regardless of however you seem to slice it, whether you're attracted to the, your, yours is no, no, nothing learned at all. Uh, others, mine was uh, kind of the causal link versus the actual encounter versus the, uh, also the David Lewis knowledge by description versus knowledge by acquaintance. It still seems, however you slice it, that there's no real learning of anything. I mean, or there's no non-physical thing entering into this equation. So I I guess this is one I'm, I'm inclined not to quibble over. I, I like your example. I, I guess I, I sometimes, I, I guess there's a sense in what does it, it all depends on what you mean by learn in the first place. That's uh, an entire area of psychology. So, and neuroscience. So, yeah, I mean, you could, I think you could put it either way, but it doesn't, but no matter how you spin it, what I think the knowledge argument is supposed to show is that there's something non-physical entering the picture here. And we have enough sufficient ways of uh, answering the question while keeping physicalism that we don't need to posit something non-physical to explain something. That's the, that's the idea. Let me shift gears in a, a radical way, but not so radical as to start talking about Mormonism. So while we're still talking about <laughs> explicitly mindy stuff, um, in, in the next like 10 minutes or so, can I get you, can I bring you to robot land? Sure. So you're a brain lover. And in philosophy of mind, brain lovers tend to be robot haters. I'm not. Oh, okay. I, I love robots. <clears throat> Could robots be conscious? Sure. Um, I, I, that remember, was easy. I, remember <laughs> what I said that made you laugh about half an hour ago. I think we're just moist robots. I don't think that there's, you know, I, I mean, I don't know how it would all work out, but I don't see anything 
that tissue can do that silicon and other things can't. So I'm all for robotics. Uh, it's, it's a very fascinating field. It's a, it's, um, it's one I'm, I want to learn more about. I now, um, I do happen to work in a neuroscience lab and things like that, but absolutely. I'm, I'm very pro robot. Wow. That was really easy. I thought I was going to get, uh, uh, get a fight robot. Oh. Rock'em sock'em robots. I don't. I don't understand. I'll be honest with you. I don't understand what the what the fight's about. It's like okay, we unless it's. I guess unless you're just trying to deify the brain in some way. <laughs> well, one way of putting the fight goes something like this. Um, there's ways of hearing functionalism, especially the part of functionalism that is the multiple realizability thesis, whereby it starts to look kind of like a dualism. So one way of of characterizing uh this line of thought would be to say something like in the case of multiple realizability like you've uh, you know we illustrate multiple realizability with mouse traps made out of different substances and in in general constructions you could have there's all sorts of different ways to trap a mouse as long as you map my, my favorite analogy is a car there's all sorts of different ways to make a car there's all sorts of different ways to make an internal combustion engine. There's the what's that th- the triangular, what do you call that? It doesn't have cylinders, but there's like this rotating triangle. It's the I'm, cyclic- not, I'm not as adept at cars as I'm at brain, sorry. I used to work at a repair for many years before no. uh, switching to a life of crime and philosophy. But um, <laughs> so like there's a lot of different ways to make cars, mousetraps, et cetera. Maybe there's lots of different ways to make minds. One way is to make them out of neurons. You build a brain. Another way is you build a computer out of microchips. And if those two different systems that both give rise to a mind have nothing physical in common, then the mental properties that are instantiated in the the bucket of silicon chips versus the bucket of brains, um, if they have nothing physical in common, then the property of believing or, or feeling pain, whatever mental property you're interested in, it can't be identical to any physical property because whatever physical property the one system has, the other system lacks. So um, that kind of looks like dualism. And then you might say like, well, maybe there is a physical property after all, like even despite these physical differences between the, the computer and the brain, there's still things they have in common, just like a, a, a sphere made out of gold and a sphere made out of wood would have no atomic elements in common. They're nonetheless, they both share the property of being spherical. Um, so maybe there is a physical property that the computer and the brain have in common. And that's what the mental property is identical to. But now you just have identity theory. It's not really a different metaphysical position in the philosophy of mind. You're just saying that this physical property that mental, mental, the mental property is identical to this physical property can be found in both brains and robots, just like a gold sphere and a wooden sphere can both be spheres and I guess, hypothetically, being a sphere is a physical property. Um, so that's one source of resistance that brain lubbers 
have to robots. Another uh, line of thought that kind of leads to the same conclusion, but I think it might be a different argument, comes from like Kripke type stuff, whereby the way reference works is that there's some kind of deep essence. This is, so this Kripke Putnam line about um, semantic externalism says something like, you know, you, you dub this stuff to be water. Here's some water. During that dubbing ceremony, when we name water, water, we might be ignorant of its chemical constitution. We don't know yet about hydrogen or oxygen. So we don't have the description in mind that water is H2O. We're just like that stuff over there. That's the water, baby. And then later on, it's discovered that the deep essence is this natural kind, which we can characterize as being, you know, two parts hydrogen, one part oxygen. Um, so water on earth, when you say water on earth, you, you, you mean H2O, whether you realize it or not. Um, and so the, the thought is something along the lines of our mental state terms, they refer via this Kripke, um, Putnam sort of like locking onto a natural kind sort of thing, but if multiple realizability is true, it doesn't look like mental kinds or natural kinds because there's really no, no natural, there's nothing natural that would allow, like, m- make you put the computer and the brain in the same set. Or, or um, So it doesn't look like a natural kind term. It looks more like a functional kind term which has its reference descriptively instead of this like direct. If it's a functional kind term, wouldn't that lend more credence to multiple realizability? Well, maybe. So it's it's a little bit complicated what the relationship is between the, the thesis of multiple reliability and the general idea of functionalism. One way to, the way I like to put it, I don't know how popular this, this is, is that, Functionalism is a positive thesis. Multiple realizability is a negative thesis that often goes along for the ride. But the core of functionalism is this positive thesis that says what a mental state is or what defines it or constitutes it is causal relationships it enters into with other mental states and sensory inputs and behavioral outputs. That, that network of causal relations or causal dispositions, there's different flavors of, of this, but that's the positive view of what a mental state is. Now, <clears throat> that positive view is silent about whether it's multiply realizable or not. But since it's silent, it's open. Um, it allows it to be multiply realizable, but it might turn out as a matter of fact, just a contingent way the universe works, uh, it's never actually multiply realized. Even though on paper, it, it, it might be multiply realizable because the positive characterization doesn't rule out um, the, 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 you know, the negative, uh, the negative thesis. So that's what, that's one way of, of, of coming at this stuff. And then what, so um 
that positive view of functionalism or that positive part of functionalism that gets united in the literature with uh, the stuff from the philosophy language uh, description theory, whereby reference is mediated by these descriptions. Um, what I mean by uh, Tarek Lacour is this set of mental descriptions. He's this, this person I met through Facebook and email. And I learned that you're doing a, Right. So I've got this description in my head. That's what, um, so, so the idea that descriptions, description theory reference and functionalism would go together. I'm not super sure where in the history of all this stuff that, that arises. One place where it really comes to a head is in David Lewis. So with like Lewis Ramsey um, style functionalism. The way you get the functionalist theories in the Ramsey Lewis way is you go find a bunch of descriptions. So where do you get the descriptions? It's like the platitudes people would utter about mental states. So like, you know, people would say that um, if, if you're, if you desire to be away from tigers and you perceive that there's a tiger nearby, then you will move in a a way away from the tiger (laughs) all things being equal that's how you will behave so you 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 gather up all these descriptions once you got all those descriptions you glue them all together and boom now you have a theory of what a belief is um that looks very different from the kind of kripke putnam story the kripke putnam story is something like you just point at this thing and later on you find out you just point like there's a whale and you might even call it a fish well yeah look at that giant fish over there and then we go and and now we're not committed we're not committed to it being a fish we just like that's just some sloppy talk to point at this thing and we say that's a whale that fish over there that's a whale that's what I'm talking about. Things like that. And then we go and we discover it wasn't a fish after all. Um, and then, by the way, that that distinction between, the on the one hand, the Kripke-Putnam way of setting this all up, and on the other hand, this kind of descriptive uh, David Lewis, uh, Frank Ramsey sort of thing, that distinction ends up lining up to a large degree with the... Um, the distinction between type B and type A materialism where the type B materialists kind of are more like the Kripke Putnam crowd where like, yeah, qualia, you know, that stuff when you see red, for example, and then you go and you discover like that maybe it reduces to excess consciousness or something like that. Um, where the type A, it's more of a type A sort of move. And this is why illusionists often just sound like they're type A materialists to many of us in philosophy mind. It seems like they have this description view of reference. So like the meaning of the term quality is just as this list of descriptions. And then if you could show that nothing in reality answers to those descriptions, then you win, you've disproven qualia. Um, so a lot, like a lot of philosophy, this one big chunk of philosophy depends on this other chunk of, of philosophy and, and everything's up for grabs and everyone's arguing about everything all the time and no one ever gets along. I don't know why we keep doing it, but we do. Well, 
the the, um, the the type A materialist, which I am one, would they they've always seemed to me to be people that just say like, okay, we're going to let science dictate our materialism, and so if science just tells us it's not there, then we're just going to say, well, so much for that. Uh, type B seems like they want to conserve as much as they can. That 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 was always my description. That was always my thought of Putnam. Was he always going to kind of wanted to keep as much as he could? Um, but to your point about that, um, I think there are a lot of difficulties of how how you're going to put certain uh, physical processes of the brain and the nervous system into robots. And just saying, like, I don't know exactly how that would work. One of them would be the one that's very interesting to me is pain which seems to be uh, very much a mammal phenomenon. Uh, that's not to say that, but of course, I know that ultimately pain will be electricity going through a bit of wiring, which isn't owned by any person. So, and obviously robots have lots of electricity going through them. So could robots feel pain? Uh, I guess in principle, I don't see why not. I just, I would, we'd have to see where the state of robotics would go, but uh if I, if I recall correctly, I think Dennett thinks that computers and robots can't feel pain. That that was something he mentions in Brainstorms. I don't know. He may have changed his mind on that. <clears throat> yeah. So in Brainstorms, he has this article. I believe the title is Why You Can't Build a Robot That Feels Pain. Yeah, exactly. And the my recollection of the paper is its point is not to argue that you can't build a robot that feels pain. It's more of like illustrating various philosophical pitfalls we run into when we try to figure out what that would even mean. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, I don't know in that paper what his specific conclusion is, but it it's but been a I, long time since I've read it. So, but in general, I I think that uh, Dennett is is pretty robot friendly and um, doesn't <clears throat> doesn't think there's anything in principle you couldn't have a, a robot do. Um, I, I, I do think, though, that the closer you make a robot to, a, to our uh, chemical composition of the brain, the more likely you are to get more human-like behavior and feelings and things like that. But I don't see any uh, in-principle reason why. I mean, again, if, if we are just moist robots, I guess we, we could be drier, if it makes any sense. With, uh, yeah, we could be drier. So... Um, this is the point in the show where uh, when I edit it, there will be a little musical break.
am back. Are you back? I am. It's been a lot right. of fun. Thanks for having me. Uh, yeah, I'm really enjoying this. And uh, so welcome back, everybody, from the break. And uh, and Tarek, this is uh, uh, really enjoying this. This is going really well. Hopefully switching to Mormonism doesn't drive the whole thing off the rails. Um, but uh, let me let me say a little bit about where I'm coming from with respect to like religion and its relationship to philosophy of mind. And hopefully that'll kind of orient the dialectic. Um, so my, um, my own background is that I was raised Roman Catholic, like, you know, went to Ro- uh, Catholic grade school and everything up through eighth grade. But around second grade, I privately converted to atheism, <laughs> just thought it all through and decided, you know, Jesus and Santa Claus are pretty much on the same ontological footing to their mutual disadvantage. Um, and that, but uh, despite being an atheist, like, you know, I'm still like going to church several times a week because that's what we do in, in the Catholic grade school. Um, and then my first marriage was in the Roman Catholic church. Second marriage, we got married in an Episcopal church, which uh, and we were informed that we'd be automatically um, excommunicated. If you're Roman Catholic and you get married in a non-Roman Catholic church, you're not Roman Catholic anymore. Sorry, you're out. So even though I'm technically on paper, I'm Roman Catholic. Uh, I'm, I guess I'm now an Episcopalian. My uh, three youngest children, I've got four kids all together. The three youngest ones have been baptized into um, Episcopalianism. My family is actually very active in our local church. I'm, things have been weird during the pandemic, but prior to the pandemic, like I was at church multiple times a week, uh, go to church every Sunday and just kind of sit there privately, not being a Christian, even though I really like the cultural forms. I feel very comfortable. Can I interrupt here now? Yeah, go ahead. My wife feels as well. No, my wife is pretty straightforward. Um, so I was raised Roman Catholic. She was raised as basically like non-practicing Jew. Um, but she converted to Roman Catholic uh, Catholicism as an adult before we met. Uh, and she still very much identifies as a Christian and believes like the Nicene Creed, like she's pretty straightforwardly Christian, where I have this weird convoluted mental gymnastics version whereby I like the cultural practices. I like the decorations and the music, even though I might, my beliefs might align more with certain forms of Buddhism. If I go into a Buddhist temple, I don't really feel at home there. But if I walk into like a, a, an Episcopal church or a Roman Catholic church, like I'm just, I'm used to that stuff. It, it, it connects with me. Um, so you're a Christian by culture, a Buddhist by metaphysics. Yeah. And the metaphysics, like even calling it Buddhist is not subtle enough, okay. depending on who I'm talking to. It might be better to characterize me as an atheist or you know but if i most atheists i talk to they're they're just such sticks in the mud relative to them i'm probably better characterized as a panentheist or something like that because i've got weird spiritual hippy dippy metaphysics about this stuff so but i am very interested in the general project of how to make broadly a, a scientific view of reality fit with a view of reality whereby it would make sense 
that you spend one or more days a week in a house of, of worship. So when you and I first started get, getting to know each other, I Googled you and I, all this stuff uh, about Mormonism came up. And I thought, oh, that's really interesting. This illusionist is also a Mormon. And and I should say, I, my my familiarity with, with um, Mormonism basically boils down to three events in my life. One of them was in the early 70s, my family was friends with these missionaries. These two guys would come to our house and uh, you know, my dad was in his early 20s at this time, and he was very exploratory and open. And, and we became pretty close friends with the, with the missionaries. And I've, you know, we've got, I've got pictures of me sitting in the laps of these, these guys, and they were really nice. Um, and that really made an impression on me. Like, uh, and we had the Book of Mormon in the house, you know, because they brought us all, the, all these different books and stuff. The book, not the musical, right? Yeah, the book. So that was my first experience with Mormonism was like this very positive experience with these two missionaries. My second experience, I'm not sure of the temporal order now, second versus third, but one of them was um, when I was at grad school in St. Louis, the temple uh, there opened up. I forgot the name of it, but there's a, this big uh, Mormon tabernacle that got built in the um, late 90s. And, and for the first two weeks that was open, they made it open to the public. They had these tours. And so my then wife at the time and I, we went on a tour in this, uh, this temple and it blew my mind, um, how just big and beautiful and frankly, really weird and creepy it was. And we could talk about that some more. And then the third <laughs> experience is, um, I'm somewhat ashamed to say this, just about everything I know about Mormonism comes from that one episode of south park uh, so um there you go be warned it's a, it's a great it's a it's a very funny episode. uh so yeah i mean like you know i think a lot of people don't appreciate that for example um the official doctrine in the roman catholic church about like mind body is not dualism it's it's an aristotelianism it, it's it's a kind it probably makes more sense to call it a kind of physicalism than uh, a dualism. Yeah, Most of the dualistic true. stuff that people have in mind when they think about uh, Christianity, that's coming from Platonism and paganism and just folklore. Like people believe in ghosts regardless of whether they're supposed to. Um, and so Descartes. It's, you know, once you dig into this stuff, it's probably not that surprising that a Christian could also be a materialist, but probably for a lot of people, it is surprising. And so maybe, you know, you could say a little bit about like what, like how you can have this scientific epistemology and metaphysics and also um, be a Mormon. What is, what does being a Mormon mean to you and how does it interact with, or just not interact with the philosophy of mind illusionism stuff? Oh, it does. Well, I'll circle back to that at the end here, but let's start with what you just mentioned about Aristotle and the Roman Catholic Church. So I think a lot of times what ends up happening with, and I think I, you could show this historically, is you have um, like lots of Protestants, of course, inherit the Cartesian view of soul and body being separate and things like that. And I think that's uh it's it's true now that the catholic church is very more kind of aristotelian although they didn't seem to like it at first when aquinas was bringing in aristotle because aristotle was 
far more materialist than Plato and that were coming from Augustine, more comfortable with Plato. Um, but yeah, you're right. There's no distinction. There's no problem in principle with a person thinking of the human soul as completely materialistic and being a Christian, where the Latter-day Saints or Mormons are going to disagree with other Christians is they think that God is also physical and a material object. So that's going to differentiate them from other Christians, is that they think the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost are all material beings. So they're complete materialists about everything. Um, and so that that's that's one kind of big aspect there is I think in Christianity that Christianity that excludes Mormonism, let's just restrict it for the time being to Roman Catholics, Eastern Orthodox, and most varieties of Protestantism, though not all. There's this big distinction, just like in the philosophy of mind, there's a distinction between the mind and the body. There's this distinction between creator and creation with God being immaterial, uncreated, eternal, all-powerful, things like that. Whereas in Latter-day Saint theology, just as Jesus kind of goes through a life cycle, is resurrected, things like that, and is purely physical, uh, they think the Latter-day Saints think that God the Father is also the uh, sorry, the how we don't know. Go ahead. Uh, we 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 broke up. There's a little bit of a delay. So um, okay, I think you were about to say that God the Father is physical or or something. Yes. Okay. Uh, actually, I think it's in, uh, one of the sections of the Doctrine and Covenants. This would be an additional book of Scripture that Latter Day Saints believe in. Says that the Father has a body of flesh and bones as tangible as man's. The Son also. So that's their their view so the so there's no so basically the reason so for me as an illusionist there's no problem because you you don't i i think a lot of people will say like okay if we're created in god's image god's not physical then there must be an aspect of us that isn't physical and that would be the mind and consciousness or things like that whereas even though latter-day saints also believe they're made in god's image god's fully material so there's no reason to add non-material stuff to your ontology so what can be as you can be as reductionist as alex rosenberg what uh which which i am but i assure you most mormons are not (laughs) what's the um what's the relationship between uh mormon god the father and and hereafter when i say god i just mean whatever you mean by god yeah i I got Uh, you is, is God the creator? Did God create the, the whole, like, is God the first physical thing? And then he f- creates all the other physical things. What's the, what's the cosmic chronology with respect to creation? That's a great question. I, I would, I would say, I, I think that the cosmos, and by this, I mean, everything like the multiverse or if there is one, I think that's the thing that exists on its own. And God kind of emerges out of that and shapes things later. So if there's a necessary being, this is kind of the go back to liveness, like there has to be some type of necessary being. Now, I don't actually buy this argument, but if if I had to say there is one, it would be the universe. And then God is ontologically after that. So God, God, I think some people think 
that one reason to believe in God is you get an explanation of everything else. Like where did reality come from and where did morality come from and what, where does the meaning of life come from? Where do we come from? And, um, but if it's universe first, and then later on you get this, this cool creature, like very impressive creature, but not as impressive as the whole universe in some sense, because the, the whole universe came first. Um, you don't get an explanation of where everything came from, at least not, you don't get it from God. Uh, so what, what are you getting from God? What's God doing? Well, um, I think a few things, God, I, I, I guess, you know, um, you, you watch that show closer to truth, right? Where Robert Kuhn kind of interviews scientists. I've seen a bunch of them. Okay. Yeah. yeah. There's, um, there's one with Dan Dennett where he says, well, what, 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 why, why do we need God? What do we need God for? Uh, you know, so for some people, as you mentioned, these would be people like uh, Richard Swinburne, Alvin Plamiga, William Lane Craig, Leibniz going back, would say God's the reason why you need there's something rather than nothing. So Latter-day Saints would kind of object to that. Um, but I guess you would explain God in terms of God's necessary for life after death, God's necessary for kind of ultimate salvation, those types of things. That's what God's necessary for. God's only necessary in a purely religious sense, not in a, uh, not in an, I guess, a metaphysical sense, if that makes any sense. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. So how about you, the you, creation? You know, of... I'm not big on metaphysics, so. <laughs> well, what else is there? Yeah. <laughs> um, Funny. How about the creation of human? Like, did God create anything? I mean, besides being a source of salvation, did he like create humans? That's or? a, there are some, now let me say, just as there are camps within Roman Catholicism about how certain things are, like, for example, you have uh, in some, in some uh, Catholic philosophers would think of God as kind of timeless and versus others would think that God's in time. There's a divide here with some Latter-day Saints who are in a very somewhat panpsychist view think or and there's I say panpsychist and also panentheist view they'll say that God is kind of a necessary being along with the universe and that the human spirit or some aspect of it is also eternal and that God just organizes it uh, that's so people like Blake Osler he's perhaps the most prominent Mormon theologian and philosopher. That's his view. Uh, not being attracted to panpsychism myself, I don't have much time for that. So I, my view would be that God makes souls out of material and also he makes life out of material processes and that he's not free to just make life however he wants. There's only a few ways to do it. So this is this also ties in a bit to the problem with evil of people saying, well, why did God create life where it's this much suffering and pain? My view would be there's no other, it's, it's similar to Rick, Richard Dawkins' view, that's just the only way to make sentient uh, life like ours. So God's kind of off the hook there. It's like, well, there was no other way. This is the only way it's going to work out. So that's, uh, so I think God creates life in the sense of he organizes matter into a certain way that it'll will evolve into what we are, but not, he doesn't create out of nothing. In other words, God can't just think the universe into existence the way that 
it seems it is in other um, Judeo-Christian Islamic traditions. So that's, so, uh, that's my thought. <clears throat> so God is, a, some, is an extraterrestrial. Yes. Who um, was not created, but did create us and is also will, will save us or is saving us. Yes, uh, I, I would I would push back on the not created part. Now, this is another feature of Mormonism that's different than Christianity. Mormonism thinks that there's like now some varieties of it, not all. Osler doesn't think this, but Joseph Smith and other Mormon leaders have taught that there's an infinite regress of gods. So there's never really a first or a last. It's okay. It's an eternal regress. So in a sense of Yes, God himself is, would be a, could be seen as created if you mean formed and organized. Okay. He wasn't created in the sense of created out of nothing. I don't, I don't really like the term creation very much because it seems like they're, because we, we, we usually mean by that term, if you say, well, you created this microphone, you mean you took materials and formed it into the form of the microphone. And that and God kind of does that on a, greater scale but yes god is an extraterrestrial and the other things that you said they're correct so one one of the things that motivated my atheism um aside from the supernaturalism like because when i first as a little kid converted to atheism my main beef was like there's all these claims that just seem like they couldn't be scientifically true stuff about rising from the dead or walking on water that just didn't like, that's like telling me Santa Claus delivers all the presents overnight. You just think like work through the math a little bit and realize like, nah, he would burst. You and, in the very sim- you and I had very similar experiences. I stopped believing in Santa Claus when I was about three, because I said, there's okay. no way that a man can fly from the north right. pole because i was i i my mom had got me like a map of the earth and a globe and i just kind of kept looking around and saying there's there's no way you can get ac- across the entire world in one in just a couple of hours yeah so yeah, yeah that was, you know, that, so that's just that's one part of my <clears throat> atheism another part of it is more emotional slash aesthetic mm-hmm. um and the reason I bring this up is because like the supernaturalism arguments aren't going to work against ET God. If God is just this physical thing. Yep. Well, right. I mean, we are m- Mormons, with that. whether they like it or not, are pretty strong metaphysical naturalists. That's actually a paper I'm working on right now. So my supernaturalism doesn't have much teeth against Mormon God as I'm hearing about Mormon God. But this other aspect of my atheism, which is this, what I would characterize as emotional or aesthetic might and let me say some more about that. Um, and, and this isn't an argument. It's just telling you like where I'm coming from emotionally and where I'm coming from emotionally is I'm, I'm, I don't know if I'm a full blown narcissist, but I am fairly full of myself. And if someone <laughs> comes along and suggests that I should worship them, or if someone else suggests I worship them, I'm going to have a very negative reaction. There's something along the lines of like, who do you think you are? I'm gonna if I'm gonna be worshiping anybody, it's gonna be maybe me or my spouse or somebody like that, someone I know um, and admire for independent reasons. You you this ET swings through the and says like you know worship me. I'm like keep moving. 
I, I don't <laughs> see what the big deal is. Also, it seems a little suspicious that you would need to be worshipped. Uh, maybe you're the one with the problem, buddy. So um, the idea of there being an ultimate being and that like we should all um, try to derive our sense of worth or, or meaning of life from this from this being, I've just had a really hard time with emotionally because it seems actually more meaningless like if and i forgot where like who i first read this from uh but this is not original with sounds like keith sounds like keith parsons maybe it comes from keith parsons but suppose it was revealed to you in a way that you just knew was absolutely true that you were created by a being who is greater than you in some sense and the main thing you were created for was to be a food source for this third kind of being that's it that's the purpose of your life okay is this good news or bad news for me and i think most people are supposed to have this reaction that's bad news so the mere fact that there's a creator who's defining what the purpose of your life is supposed to be doesn't actually seem to inspire worship it doesn't seem to give it doesn't seem like it supplies meaning of life if anything, it's it, it, it does the contrary. It would be like if I found out that I'm a robot and worse, I'm a, I'm a Roomba, <laughs> right? I like accidentally open up the hood and find the, you know, the vehicle uh, identification number and the instruction manual. And it's, it's just, uh, it reveals I'm just a fancy vacuum cleaner that was left here by space aliens a couple million years ago and they forgot to shut me down. Uh, that would be terrible news. So um, this God who isn't the necessary, simple omni-God that you get from other traditions, what's so great about this God? Why should I throw in with with this ET that just happened to make me? First of all, I want to say that would be exactly my response to the other kind of triple omni-God of what, you know, I was thinking about this the other day. Why does God really need you to worship him? It's like if he if he's if he's not first of all, he's not affected by anything in any way in Thomism, as you as you remember. So I was thinking about that too. Um, but to your point, one would be this would be another thing. So Latter-day Saints think that human beings can become like God. So in other words, God doesn't want you to worship him in the sense of just sitting there forever in awe and eternal adoration, he wants you to become like him in some sense. So you your your problem isn't a, really a problem because God doesn't want you to do that either. You're not created to just be a slave in some sense. Um, so that would be one. Um, and of course, the other thing, I guess, I don't know if this plays a part at all in your kind of problem, but... It seems as though you're kind of pointing out that God will either have you worship him forever or you'll be separated from him forever. And that will be the latter would be a very bad thing, whereas Latter-day Saints also don't subscribe to the idea of hell in that type of a sense. So that would be kind of my response there. So so soteriologically, that's a hard word to pronounce. The salvation story. I, I love the word, though. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a, great a great word. Soteriology. Um, so <laughs> what you just said makes 
certain aspects of the Mormon story of salvation mm-hmm. sound a lot like Buddhism in the sense that like, okay, there's this, there's this character who comes along and, and, and is inviting you to become like them. They're here to lift you up. Like you, if you really, you know, you work really hard, you too could become a Bodhisattva, maybe even a, a Buddha. And um, so it's not humiliating. You're not being invited to humble yourself. It's not like a conqueror that comes and says, kneel before Zod, kiss the ring of existence. It's just like, hey, you know, a I got a comic book of some set, some type. I don't know who Zod. Oh, is. that was a Superman reference. So, um, oh no, I hate Superman. That's probably why General Zod is one of was was a bad guy from Krypton. Had powers comparable to Superman, but uh, somehow Superman got the upper hand and cast General Zod into the Phantom Zone. Um, I'm actually more of a Marvel guy than a DC guy, but I'm a Batman guy. So Batman. Oh, all right. Um, but Zod in, I think it's um, Superman 2 from like 1980. Uh, there's a lot. He has this line, kneel before Zod, which <laughs> if, if my name was Zod, I think I would insist that people kneel before me, uh, <laughs> kneel before Zod. Anyway, um, what I was, what I, I was just saying that um, it, as you're characterizing God, it like I, I don't really have the objection that I like. I see that like if okay, yeah. if you're if you're right, then that's that seems okay. That's not offensive to me the way a lot of other characterizations of God. It's just it's just like no, no. You're describing to me like the world, the universe's biggest tyrant or or narcissist or both, and inviting me to to join their team and and. Uh, no, I'm going to join up with Lucifer. If that's the lay of the land, I'm with the rebel angels. Because they have cooler music anyway. It's already <laughs> leaning in that direction. Um, the uh, There was something else I wanted to ask you, and it has slipped my mind. It was about... Um, hmm. <clears throat> Forgot what it was going to be about. Oh, yes. What would it... I know. I know. I want to make you feel guilty about being a human and also a religious person. Because even though uh, a lot of things you're saying would seem to get you off of various hooks about, say, supernaturalism or, um, you know, problems about debasing humanity. Um, So it seems like you're threading that needle. But what about like this general kind of human scientism? Oh, I remembered the other thing also was about prayer. I wanted to ask you how you thought prayer worked or if you even did think it worked, but let's focus on the humanism thing now. Um, So uh, even though on the face of it, like a a big ET with powers in excess of humanity, but not, you know, the Omni God, um, just real powerful being. What's the positive evidence for this? Haven't you like leapt? Haven't you leapt to a belief that uh, exceeds that available evidence for it in, in your uh, in your belief in, in this God? Or do you have do you have do you have positive evidence that would satisfy a human who is really uh, or you know really 
pretty was, tight about what they're going to throw in with. I was actually, uh, I'm actually writing a paper on uh, Hume's dialogues and uh, some other things. So this is actually playing into that. Uh, <clears throat> if you recall in the dialogues, which might be Hume's best work, I don't know. I go back and forth between the treatise or the dialogues, my favorite with Hume's, but we'll set that to the side. So Philo is listening to Cleanthes and Cleanthes is the, he and Philo are the empiricists or Demi as the rationalist who's, who sees himself out later. But so Cleanthes gives this argument to design and Philo says, okay, well, yeah. He's like, I can, I can buy that, but it would only get you this type of a being. It wouldn't get you the God of Orthodox theism. He's being Christianity, Judaism, Islam. So I think what I would say is kind of two points of accumulation for the Mormon idea of deity. One would be, I think, the arguments for God's existence, insofar as they present us anything at all, are more compatible with our type of being. And I would only use the more um, evidentialist arguments for God, not the ontological or things like that. So things like fine tuning and things like that. Um, that would be one. And the other would be the negative arguments of atheism, which I think are very powerful ones, aren't as potent against that uh, our conception of God. So I think it's reasonable to believe in God in that in sense, I, where it wouldn't necessarily be much so in, let's say, um, in the orthodox sense. I, I use the term orthodox. I'm just talking about generic monotheism. That would be one. Um, so that would be, so I don't, I don't think I betray my human principles on that front. Also, here's the other thing. I think this is both, this is actually a good thing about Mormonism. Since God's a physical object, it's open to falsification. So at least in principle, we know that this conception of God could be falsified. Like if you can, landscape the entire cosmos and you don't find a god there then god doesn't exist and atheism is correct so we to quote Karl popper stick our necks out a little bit there whereas it seems as though to me now maybe you disagree it doesn't seem to matter what science comes up with there's no way to really falsify the idea of the omni god so as he's immaterial non-spatial so it's like, well, there's not, then it doesn't matter what we do. We'll never falsify this versus uh, with the Latter-day Saint conception. I think it is falsifiable, at least in principle. So, so, wanna, I, oh, so, I, don't, so I don't betray my empiricist verificationist uh, roots. <clears throat> Let me press you specifically about the, the positive evidence. Okay. I think your response was nice about, you know, the... Uh, the Mormon God is not as vulnerable as the Omni God to various negative or atheistic arguments. I, I buy that, uh, or at least, you know, I don't hate it. Um, <laughs> but let me press you for more specifics about the positive evidence for God. What, what do you think that is? And, and like, a, and, um, and is that, is it really the bet? Cause one way of thinking about evidence is like, well, you've got evidence that's, you know, you've got evidence for this, but then there's this competing hypothesis that would explain the same evidence. 
or at least yeah. some of the same evidence. So which of these hypotheses is the best hypothesis? And then from there, we have to bring in maybe super empirical criteria, like which is the simpler hypothesis or mm-hmm. what most gels with other theories that we already think are, are well-supported. But can you just say some more about what you think the, the positive case is? Um, the, one, the argument that's always impressed me the most is the argument from fine-tuning. So that would be the idea that certain constants of nature have to be such for intelligent life to exist within our uh, universe. And so a thought there would be, one would be, it could just be due to chance. Um, Another would be physical necessity. And then design would be a third alternative. Now, I think these are all reasonable alternatives. Uh, Now, being a Humean, I don't believe in physical necessity <laughs> of that kind of a sort. Um, that would be one. Um, I'm not, not sometimes, some days I'm not even sure what necessary even means, but that's another story. Um, chant, and then if you, you have the opportunity of chance or design, I think the uh, alternative of design is more probable than chance. I would defer to the work of people like uh, Roger Penrose on the atheistic side and then Richard Swinburne on the theistic side for that probability. Can I interrupt you before you go any further? Go ahead. Uh, Because I was hearing all the stuff about God being physical as Uh God is a proper part of of this universe. Mm Mm-hmm. But fine-tuning arguments, to my knowledge, and by the way, I'm not—I don't know a lot about fine-tuning arguments. Mm-hmm. So very soon we're gonna—the water's gonna be too deep for me. But uh, my understanding of fine-tuning arguments is that they're always about an entire universe. Mm-hmm. So presumably, whoever is doing the fine-tuning is, in some sense, outside of this universe. Yeah, and, and so God, I, I think God seems like his, a problem. God, God is within a physical space and a time. I'm just saying that um, our universe seems like it's begun to exist about 14 billion years ago or so, before which there wasn't anything kind of there. So I think God designs it. I kind of being outside of it is the idea. Oh, oh, oh okay. So that's the idea. But yes, um, so that so that would be the, the main kind of criteria. And I would also say, I think, Religious experience gives more credence to God's existence, although I don't think it proves any particular religion true. But I find it interesting that there is religious experience crosses cultures and things like that, even though I also think it has a neurophysiological basis as well. Um, so I think that so that so this would be an addition to fine tuning. I would say that the kind of the facts about the life death and resurrection of jesus makes a good a good make makes that makes it plausible and i would also want to add here that i don't think that any argument for god or mostly anything is ever fully conclusive as i'm an empiricist and a fallibilist so it may be that all these arguments will fail and then if they did then I would perhaps give up, or most likely I would give up my belief. So it's not a, 
I'm not religious because I just really want to believe in God. I would be totally fine if there was no God and we just went in the grave and that was that. I just feel that the evidence pulls me more towards belief than non-belief. But like any other any of my other beliefs, to quote Bertrand Russell, I wouldn't die for them because I could be wrong. And being on the empiricist scientistic side, I leave all these arguments open to critique and uh, maybe maybe I have a bunch of blind spots it's fully possible let me ask you about Jesus so um, about I don't know 15 years ago I had a, a student uh, who after they came back after they graduated and and uh, while while they were away they had gotten really into this uh, I don't know what to call it like Jesus skepticism, by which I mean, there's a bunch of people claiming who claim that uh, the mythical the, the Jesus myth theory that there is no Jesus. Yeah, that's maybe that's the the name for it. Uh, yeah. But the idea isn't simply to deny uh, the the godhood of Jesus of Nazareth. They deny that there was ever a dude from Nazareth named Jesus. <laughs> like you know the 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 view is something like if you if you really get serious about the historical record and like what's the evidence that like these events that are portrayed in the gospels Mm -hmm. right that there's a there's a dude jesus and his mom is mary and then there's like these apostles and they had a dinner and there was a a sword fight and the judas like hung himself like how much of that stuff is literally true and their answer is absolutely none of it it was all made up uh, hundreds of years after the alleged events took place. If you look at the historical record to see what, w- what was happening in that part of the world around that time, their claim is something like there wasn't even a Nazareth. Like Nazareth didn't even exist until later. The region almost certainly wouldn't have had anyone named Jesus or just about everyone was named Jesus, like John Smith. There's a bunch of Jesuses. Uh, but the basic the basic view is is something like um, if you look if you go looking in the historical record, the best you find is like hundreds of years after the Christianity cult would have already been in existence. You have Herodotus mention in his history of Rome that there were Christians. So you have a historical evidence for early Christians, but like no historical evidence. There's no like nothing independent of the Christianity cult. There's not like a, you know, there's not like a Roman um, docket or, you know, there's not a Roman poster that says like, you know, we're going to crucify Jesus of Nazareth tonight, or, you know, Pontius Pilate uh, tried these, these characters on this day, nothing at all like that. Um, But if you compare someone else whose initials are JC, Julius Caesar, there's an enormous amount of multiple and independent sources of historical evidence that really was such a character as Julius Caesar. And he did a lot of the things, literally it did the things that various records say he did. Like for example, get stabbed to death by a bunch of senators. Uh, that all happened, but Jesus, there's no Jesus. Um, so, and that really had a big effect on me. I started thinking like, wow, like, yeah, what is the, what is the evidence that like, if you were going to have an evident evidence for Jesus, the Christ, the resurrected son of God, 
where's the evidence? What's the evidence? Like Let, we can't even prove there was a Jesus of Nazareth. But let's start there. So Bart Ehrman, who's an agnostic, uh, New Testament scholar, he works at um, North Carolina University, University of North Carolina. So he wrote a book. It's called Did Jesus Exist? Uh, he's one of the preeminent uh, New Testament scholars. So he did. Now, remember, Bart Ehrman does not believe in Jesus. He's not a Christian, as he makes very clear in the book, in the beginning and in the end. Uh, but he talks about a few of these things. So you know that Julius Caesar, there's a lot of evidence for him, not comparable evidence for Jesus of Nazareth. Okay. Julius Caesar, A, is basically running the world to that point. So it would be kind of weird if there wasn't evidence for him where Jesus of Nazareth is a peasant in uh, what's now modern day Palestine. So, of course, we wouldn't expect comparable evidence for those two people. They're not as big of a thing. Um, but there is uh, evidence for Jesus. Um, we have mentions of him in Josephus, and Josephus uh, is very close to Jesus's timeline. And also Josephus talks about people like John the Baptist and other people that are mentioned in the Gospels. And Josephus is not a Christian either. So that's not a, he has no axe to grind for Jesus being the Messiah. He mentions that Jesus was uh, crucified, baptized, that his uh, brother was killed, things like that. So there are things like that. And then also Tacitus, who is a Roman historian, also mentions that Jesus was ex existed and was crucified by Pontius Pilate and things like that. So those are two. Uh, one, you have one Jewish person can, who's close to Jesus and Tacitus, who's also uh contemporary uh, not not contemporary but not that far away writing about jesus so there is evidence of him existing and there's a few others as well Ehrman goes through all these in his book uh did jesus exist uh that's also the consensus of new testament scholarship is that there was a historical person named jesus of nazareth who did these certain types of things um i guess one of your points there it, was was it just the just Jesus existing part of what evidence is there that Jesus was divine? Well, the way I was trying to set it up, because like you need, you said something about Jesus's resurrection. Oh, the case so, for Jesus's resurrection. So I'm okay. trying to, I'm trying to like prepare uh, a, a skeptical yeah. uh, response to that claim. But as a kind of a throat clearing exercise, I'm like, well, by the way, like you don't even know there was a Jesus in the first place. Yeah. Okay. Well, but you're going to tell me that he the, the further there was and he rose from the dead. Like it seems mm -hmm. like you're really on weak footing, given how hard it is to have any evidence whatsoever about anything anybody did back two thousand years ago. So that was the point of bringing up um, the the mythical Jesus stuff was just kind of to show how how hard it would really be to have any positive evidence that anybody anything let alone something that on the face it would seem to to violate natural law like yeah. it's just as a matter of fact people don't rise from the dead you usually yeah. statistically speaking no one rises from the dead yes that's uh that's something hume makes a very big point of in his beautiful essay on miracles uh but yeah. back to the other i guess the part about jesus being resurrected from the dead so nt Wright in his book the son of god rises richard swinburne in his book uh the resurrection of um 
God incarnate, they go through, oh, Schwinburne makes a Bayesian case for the resurrection. So for those readers who are interested in probability theory and things like that, he talks about that. So there are just certain facts about Jesus's life, such as his uh, crucifixion, death, burial, and discoveries of his empty tomb. And then there's the, uh, these, I, these uh, facts are weighted against an alternative explanation, such as, well, is it possible that the people who discovered Jesus' empty tomb went to the wrong tomb or that they stole the body or things like that. And also the idea that the apostles later and other people had visions of Jesus alive as a person. And that also led them to believe that Jesus had risen from the dead, which is different than most visions of people. Now, often today, even people have visions of people who have died, but that's usually confirmatory evidence that the person is dead, not that the person is still alive and with us kind of a thing versus it has the opposite effect in the among the 12 so the now this is more of a historical case kind of a thing so you'd have to read those books i'm just giving kind of the sketch here so that would i i found the argument persuasive so i would recommend those books to readers if they want to talk about those more and those of course have been attacked by people who are not believers so look at both sides and come to that i just happen to side with the believing side let me can i shift gears slightly and it absolutely keeping the topic on it's your show you do whatever you want well i can't do anything i want um (laughs) (laughs) but um uh so still thinking about positive evidence but shifting from jesus to joseph smith uh um, cause you know, with, with Jesus, a lot of the lack of evidence you could chalk up to, for example, it was so long ago, the more time goes by, the more evidence you lose. And we didn't have, we didn't have the levels of journalism, print, printing press, uh, photography, like we, we have all sorts of media, uh, uh all sorts of recording practices, the, the practice of history, journalism, all sorts of uh, collection and distribution of information is way more sophisticated than it was in um, the Middle East 2000 years ago. And so in some, ca- in some sense, even though Joseph Smith is closer to us, that makes it harder <laughs> to, to present a, a convincing collection of positive evidence for believing uh, these claims and competing hypotheses that you might be like debunking hypotheses like well this it's a scam there that's what happened this guy is lying and he fooled a bunch of people uh, so they could have a bunch of wives the end right that um because there could have been photographs there, there could have been uh people outside of the church reporting there could have been someone who doesn't believe at all telling us about tablets um but there's there seems to be a lack of a lot of uh positive evidence in a way that's much more problematic than this thing that happened allegedly thousands of years ago so can you can you comment on the on the request for positive evidence for the the main pieces of the joseph smith story um I, okay, I, if I'm understanding the question, you're saying, well, 
if Joseph Smith was a prophet, we would expect this type of evidence and we don't have it. Is that kind of the idea? Yeah, something like this. So, uh, and by the way, I'm glad you brought up Hume's on miracles because that is the sort of thinking that I'm bringing to this, right? Yeah. Like with the with Hume's discussion of miracles, you're always dis- you're always thinking in terms of competing hmm. explanations of the data. What would be the greater miracle that um, you know this actually happened, or that someone in this long chain of he told two friends and they told two friends that someone there is either a, deceived or themselves a deceiver what's the more likely case and of course as we know from reading hume in in all these sorts of cases he urges the conclusion that it's more likely that someone along the way is uttering a falsehood either deliberately or accidentally it's just much more likely and so you have a similar sort of case in in some cases the skeptic is on stronger footing because (laughs) There could have been photographs. There are no photographs. There could have been eyewitness testimony from non-believers. There's none of that. There's the, so there's all these extra opportunities for corroboration from something that's just a hundred or two hundred years ago versus a thousand or two thousand years ago. And so when they, when that corroboration is lacking, it's even worse in the nearer nearer case. Gotcha. So okay, it's, well, so another way of putting it. If you told me someone rose from the dead 2000 years ago versus you told me someone rose from the dead last week, in some weird sense, it's the, 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 the 2000 years ago case is the more credible case because there's many more things that would explain it's, it's away the, more, the lack it's of the far more evidence. Viable case. Yes. That's um, a nice way of putting it. Thank you. Yeah. Um, okay. Let, you, you mentioned something about testimonies of non-believers in the case of Joseph Smith, we do have that. You have on the cover page of the Book of Mormon testimony of eight witnesses and testimony of three witnesses who say that they saw the plates and things like that. What's interesting about those witnesses is that several of them end up leaving the church, not liking Joseph Smith for a variety of reasons, but still testified, no, no, this, this still happened. We just have our other problems with Joseph Smith. So they would be kind of in that non-believing somewhat category, I would think. Wait, real um, quick, let me ask a direct follow-up to that. When they yes, when they left the church, did they did they still retain? Um, I don't, I'm not sure how to put this. Did they leave the church to go start their own spinoff church? No. If so, they might retain the motive to stick by that testimonies. Nope. Okay, so no, no, no one starts another church. Um, one, one of them did come back many, many years later, but, okay. yeah, but there's nothing in it for them. None of them started another church. So aside from the, I mean, they might still be motivated to not seem like a liar, I guess. That's that's true. I mean, most of them did not. So, okay. Yeah. Anyway, I'm just Martin Harris. He he was the one who, he was actually in the, uh, Joseph Smith episode of, uh, South Park. The one who fought, he's the guy who's Joseph Smith is looking into the hat. And the person that's writing it down, that's Martin Harris. So, but, yeah. uh, so there you go. Um, you have that. Um, I would say also you have the um, the fact that Joseph Smith, to me, gives a a religion 
that is in principle falsifiable one and two that makes a lot of what i would say scientific sense even though he wasn't really learned about science at all that would be kind of a good point in his favor but the book of mormon uh also it seems to be a very ancient text and has the uh traces of being ancient and has and may and make ancient predictions as well that have been some of them have been confirmed can you so, say a little bit more about that because um the the little bit i know about what you're talking about is it, it has something to do with like certain kinds of li- linguistic statistical patterns or something like oh, that is well that... i mean th- first of all now let me throw out here that i'm not a linguist and i'm not a historian i'm just giving kind of a sketch here i'm a philosopher of uh, psychology and stuff like you so i uh, was what i was saying there is like there are certain in the Book of Mormon, it talks about a group of people who leave from modern day Palestine, Israel, come to the New World, and they're talking. There are certain things like they'll talk about areas of the Old World that where they're burying people, and they give like a specific name called they call it Naham, and then that same area as described in the Book of Mormon, which wasn't known at the time of Joseph Smith, is later discovered in the old world where Joseph Smith never went. So okay. that's that's one. So it's like, okay, what's... And so then you bring up the Hume scale of, okay, well, okay, maybe you can once in a while just randomly predict something and it gets right. But there are other... When Joseph Smith keeps getting it right a lot of the times in the Book of Mormon, that gives more credence to it being an ancient record rather than a... Uh, modern record so those are some of the things i think are persuasive about joseph smith that does not uh, but i but speaking to your um your your talk about multiple wives and things like that that's not to say that everything joseph smith did i approve of or i think was a good thing or that people can't have legitimate criticisms of joseph smith that uh would lead them to not believe in him so I, I am a father of a daughter and I have another daughter on the way so I can understand people's uh, criticisms of plural marriage, um, especially, especially to younger girls. Yeah, I'm a daughter. Uh, I, I'm a daughter. I'm a father of four daughters. Um, so, oh, okay. So no sons, all daughters. Right. And um, uh, I'm I, looking at the clock. And try to figure out what we could squeeze in. Um, I had mentioned five minutes or so. Yeah, so um, I wanted to. I had mentioned wanting to ask you about prayer, but let me plug that into a, a more general question. Um, the the more general question is like, what what is God doing now? Uh, and like, and I want to know stuff that's pertinent to the question of physicalism. So, like, is God listening to our prayers? Is God answering prayers? Is God watching us? Like, what what is God doing? And what 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 can you say in a hand wavy or sketchy way, if need be, about how the, God's actions now are consistent with physicalism or naturalism? Okay. Well, uh, first of all, I know that there's been a few studies of prayer. I think step is one. There have been a few others where they're talking about the, if, if this, this, this prayer helped you get better, that's kind of the idea. I've always had a bit of a suspicion about those studies such as, well, 
God doesn't have to answer every prayer. That doesn't mean he does or he doesn't. It's just kind of like, okay, I don't see how that's really correlated. But the uh, uh, but yes, I do believe God answers prayer. But I don't think God is a puppet master in the sense of kind of making everything happen exactly the way he wants it to. I think that God kind of, as we're here to learn, that's a big part of why I say theology, is you're here to learn and be tested. God in many ways appears absent and doesn't do as much. He's not trying to make himself overly known once you kind of recognize his existence. So I think God does answer prayers from time to time. Um, but can we focus on that? Like, so ahead, if, if go God is able to um, answer prayers, that means God is able to receive prayers. Mm-hmm. And if God is physical, then the receipt of prayer would need to say, respect the speed of light. It would, mm-hmm. like, right. So there would need to be an energy transfer. Uh, presu- like if God is in the universe, there's going to be some energy transfer within the universe that's, that can't exceed the speed of light. If God is outside of the universe, then that raises all well, sorts of if, questions. If, if, God's, what... if, if God's in a constant motion, yes. <clears throat> but, but my question is like, so in, in making these assertions about prayer, are you committed to telepathy? Or you, like, how does this hang? Like, how does God do it you're not like are oh, radio I, I, waves I have, going? No, I have no idea <laughs> okay but it does rate i mean you admit that it does raise a bit of a problem yes. like how this would work in a physicalistic or naturalistic framework absolutely um, especially if he's got real-time access to what's going on in your thoughts mm-hmm. um now i i again i i think this is this is one of those things that I think you can believe something kind of and, and have good like reason to believe it, but you don't know all the details. That That's a question I have too. How does God exactly manipul- manipulate natural law and things like that? And I don't, and the answer is I don't, I do not know at this point. So there have been some people who have like Blake Osler, who have gone more into the philosophy of space and time as it relates to God, but that's not an area I've worked in yet. So so we're we're in our final stretch here uh, last four or five minutes and I, I don't know about you but i hate writing conclusions to papers and i hate figuring out how to end a podcast i'm inclined to just like throw the car and park and say everyone get out um but as we try to end this gracefully let Lots me ask you that'd be a lot of that'd be a lot of fun to watch by the way <laughs> everyone get out get out I've threatened it many times as a, as a, both a father and a driver, but I've never followed through on that threat. I've never. Well, I, well, I will, on, on behalf of the people you didn't kill, I thank you. <laughs> but let me, let me ask you, is there anything um, coming up in, in your near future? Uh, what's, what's on the horizon for you with respect to the illusionism stuff or thinking through philosophy and Mormonism, what, what's on the, what's up next? Well, I'm, you know, kind of, I've sent you a few outlines of the dissertation, so working on that. Uh, some of those will be turned into paper conferences and hopefully into publications. Uh, at uh, Fair Latter-day Saint, Fair Mormon, it's a, they do apologetics. 
I'm doing a paper on the best arguments for atheism and how Latter-day Saints would respond to them. So I'll be talking about the problem of evil from people like J.L. Mackey and Paul Draper and J. Howard Sobel. And also divine hiddenness as J.L. Schellenberg has laid it out, which I think are the two best arguments for atheism. There are others uh, that I won't, but you don't, you have to restrict yourself with time, just like in a podcast. So that's something I'll be doing. Um, I'm working on a paper uh, on Hume's dialogues. I'm also working on a paper about Mormonism and naturalism and how just as Mormonism, you know, it can sidestep the problems of atheism to a certain extent, it inherits some of the problems of naturalism, such as, okay, well, then if Mormons are naturalists, how do they ground objective moral values or do they have to believe in objective moral values? How do they escape Plantinga's argument that naturalism is self-refuting and then one from Oppie that I'll talk about is Oppie thinks that naturalism entails atheism. And in a sense, he's right, because if you think that theism is what, you know, Augustine, Avicenna, and others believe, then Mormons are atheists in that sense. So that's not really a problem either. So those are some papers I'm working on. That should be out soon. Very cool. By the way, I think you mentioned in that uh, other podcast. Uh, that you're a moral, like you're an error theorist or a... Yes. That, we haven't touched on that at all. That's that's pretty wild. You would you would think of a theist or a Christian as being some kind of moral realist, right? I think I, I can't square it with physicalism. The moral realism. Yeah. It's, yeah. Like, I, it's, it's not been from a matter of, try, <laughs> matter of trying. I just, I don't, I don't see how they hang together. Um, not now I don't to quote Michael Roos I don't deny substantive ethics about normativity and things you should do I just don't I just would deny the foundations that I think it's kind of created rather than outside of us kind of a thing um, so I actually have a paper on that on how Latter-day Saints if they're divine command how, how do you reconcile like a lot of Latter-day Saints are divine command theorists implicitly yeah, and I'm yeah. kind of writing a paper about okay, how would this work if there aren't any moral facts? You would say something like, "Well, God is the most intelligent being. He cares about you. He only wants you. He has your best interest at heart. So basically, you should listen to his commands because they're more likely to get you what you want than the not kind of a thing." So that that's another. Yeah, but yeah, I'm meta ethically, I'm a moral error theorist, but normatively, I am a virtue ethicist. So. Yeah, very there interesting. <clears throat> By the way, do you know uh, or know of Lance Bush? He's uh, yes, yeah. He's I I, I regularly read his uh, Facebook and his criticisms of moral realism. Okay, so, so he's on deck to come on Space Time Mind. We're going to talk uh, moral realism, but also qualia quietism. I, that's how I I first learned of him. Is like he was I was googling myself. <laughs> which is something I do once in a while as a treat. And uh, I found this guy, uh, Lance Bush, who's arguing for qualia quietism and, and quoting me and paraphrasing me. And I was just like, this guy's a genius. I agree with everything he's saying. Um, but then I found out he was a moral anti-realist and, and I started reading in, in uh, his stuff and, and listening to the 
podcasts and, and YouTube videos that he's been on. Um, but anyways, we should, I know you got places to go. Um, we should wrap this up. So thank you uh, very much, Tarek. I think that was a pretty cool conversation and, and hopefully you'd be willing to come back because I, I don't know about you. I feel like we barely scratched the surface on this stuff, even though we've been talking for the better part of three hours. For sure. Uh, anytime you want to have me on, uh, I'm happy to come on and I'm glad you think I'm interesting to talk to. And it's been a pleasure talking through Twitter and other mediums. So we'll yeah, I really on. enjoy it. I'm glad uh, we got to meet. I believe you're the one who reached out to me first, you, like was right. it email or Facebook. We no, it's on Twitter. I found you and oh, okay. said how much I loved your your book. Well, thank uh, you. One other that. thing you had asked about things I'm doing. So Emer- you, you remember Emerson as I yeah. did his show. He and I are going to be having a debate about illusionism versus panpsychism. So that will be happening soon. Oh, awesome. Do you have a date set for that? Uh, tentatively, it's going to be Monday, but we are... We're, we're oh, wow. Okay. So it'll be... It'll be so... Okay, so that'll send me a send me a link after that happens, and I'll because this this episode will be published maybe you know a week from now, so mm-hmm. I'll be able to link to that debate. In I'll send you a link to my blog that I'm putting up too. It's awesome. Calling it, uh, it's going to be called Plato's Camera. So after a book. Oh, excellent! Paul That's an excellent name, by the way. So Thank please you. stay on so I can say bye to you off the air. But uh, I'm going to push yeah. the button. Uh, that will end uh, the the podcast episode. Here we go, everybody. Hold on to your butts. I'm pushing the button. Thank you for listening to Space Time Mind. For more info about today's episode, as well as info about our video series and other supplements, check out our website at spacetimemind.com. We'd love to hear from you, so please send us your comments on Twitter at spacetimemind99 or on our blog at spacetimemind.com. And please rate us on iTunes to help spread the word. Until next time, this is Pete Mandic saying...
mind. Mind.